so maybe not the best place for dinner. <laughs> We're flirting. All the horses will be on fire. High school must have been terrible. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's going to the kinema. I'm Kelly Anakin. <laughs> and I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I have to clean some shoes. You always say that, <laughs> and then you never clean the shoes. No, they're pretty disgusting. Yeah, why are you like this? <laughs> Who cleans shoes? Bates. <laughs> but we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. This is our recap of Downton Abbey Series 5, Episode 7. seven? Yes. Lucky seven. That's right. Uh, I forgot what episode we're on. <laughs> Clearly. But before we get to the recap, it's time to announce our cousin of the week. Uh, this was a really difficult choice this week. Yeah. We had really great letters coming in. So right. please keep those coming. Uh, I, again, I would love to tell you that we'll like publish them and our responses at some point, but <laughs> time wise, that may not be possible. It may be the case. But with our jobs that we have. Oh, right. Those. Right? <laughs> anyway, uh, Cousin Allison writes in, Dear Kelly and Tom, love the show as always. I was the one that wrote you my prediction about Gregson being tied up in the putsch, which, squee, you read on the podcast. <laughs> but as I was a week behind at the time, my thought, which I think I stole from somewhere, was that Gregson was being set up to be a Nazi sympathizer, not as someone who would end up as a victim of the Nazis. My thought was proved wrong that very week. But what if I wasn't wrong? How much more fun of a plot development would that be? So Gregson comes home with a divorce with just weeks to spare before baby is born. He and Edith get married in a hurry, but she ex- demands for him to explain his mysterious disappearance. He is vague on purpose. The show's writers don't have to explain. And we are left with some sense that there is something a bit off about Gregson happening to be in Germany around this time. Edith can't be too picky, and despite scandal, Marigold is born to married, wealthy parents, and everyone lets it slide. Marigold might even have a better name, since Dad is in the picture. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, it starts to become clearer that Gregson's newspaper continues to trend toward the modern, but in a rather fascist way. In life, he might say some nice things about Mussolini. He might drop some anti-Semitic bombs in front of Atticus. He might start to refer to, G- to Edith's Jewish ancestry as problematic. We want to like him, but we start going... Oh, crap. He's a Nazi. (laughs) Meanwhile, Edith, head over heels and so happy someone loves her, is willing to put up with him and might start saying some nasty things herself, giving us a new reason to love to hate her instead of just feeling sorry for her. She could continue to look great, too, so we can admire her fashion and hate the words coming out of her mouth at the same time. Our couple can even become friends with the future king. It would be a really interesting if dark development for the show. As a bonus, no baby stealing and no pigs. (laughs) Okay, so while I'm at it, I have two book recommendations. I was going to send you all my copies, but then, of course, I can't find them right now to do so, nor can I find the mailing info for you or your Amazon wish list. Did you ever do one of those? So while I figure that out, here they are. (laughs) They are both post-famine Irish history books written for a popular audience. You guys mentioned you were a bit weak on modern Irish history, but are really seeming to love it. There are a ton of books on Irish history, of course, but these two, both of which I read in college, have stuck with me for 15 years, even though I've probably read about 100 books on Irish history and the history of the Irish diaspora since then. The first is called Dublin Tenement Life. It is a book of oral interviews from the Dublin tenements in the 20th century. These accounts are amazing. Everyday life stuff, you will not be able to put it down. Well, Tom won't, but I think Kelly might even (laughs) like it. 
<laughs> the second, Belfast Diary, is an account from a journalist who moved into working-class Belfast during the troubles of the 80s. Again, a page-turner. I know these are both pretty far afield from Downton Abbey, but they will certainly reinforce your opinion that Tom is a big feckin' coward. <laughs> Have a wonderful week, Cousin Allison. Thank you very much, Cousin Allison. Yes. Uh, I'd also like to say Irish diaspora is a great tongue twister, <laughs> if anybody is looking for that. Yeah. I like that Gregson plot line more than just about anything that's actually happened ever on Downton Abbey. No, I, I, I think it's great. Well, and what I think is really interesting about that is if you remember, this is going way, way back to series one, but Edith, when she was first sniffing around Sir Anthony Strallen, he mentioned that he and his late wife were pals with the Kaiser. Mm, so mm-hmm. Edith clearly has some sort of weird fixation on dudes with connections to Germans <laughs> in the seat of power. Yeah. Um, no, and I mean, it's, you know, I believe it's been, like, definitely confirmed that Series 6 is the end. Mm. It's finally, like, <laughs> going to be the end of Downton Abbey, which is almost unfortunate. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm really starting to get into it again. Right. And, like, I'm really interested to see what would happen during World War II, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I guess we're kind of getting that a bit in Upstairs, Downstairs. Right. But... It's not the same. It dude. isn't the same now, and I mean, you know, they're still they're still almost twenty years away from World War Two. Like they're just, you know, they're not going to make it. No, so I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just too much time. Yeah, but it is worth imagining what, what mid fifties Edith and Gregson, you know, on a yacht with the Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson, <laughs> just just uh, fascisting it up. That's right. Yeah, yeah. fashion it up. <laughs> That's a weird phrase. That, that as, as it is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, also, thank you for the book recommendations. Mm-hmm. We do have an Amazon wish list. Uh, it is around. Right. I don't know how you search for a wish list. <laughs> I think it's under Up Yours Downstairs on Amazon. So, Godspeed, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, you can also search for, like, Kelly Hennigan. Like, I don't know. And, and uh, just hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll try to post it again to Twitter and to Facebook mm-hmm. uh, if you want to use that. Right. That's great. If you would like to be considered for Cousin of the Week, this was a twofer. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize. I mean, yeah. I did, but I didn't, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you would like to throw your hat in the ring or just want to send us some feedback, you can send us a telegram. We're upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. You can send us a carrier pigeon aka tweet we're at five maggie smiths that's at five the number five maggie smiths or you can just search up yours downstairs exclamation point on facebook yes oh also worth mentioning so we announced last week that this year we'll be doing separate podcasts for both mr selfridge and peaky blinders right uh mr selfridge podcast will be starting on march the 29th okay and you know apologies to all of our cousins uh across the pond who are currently watching mr selfridge right we just can't do two recaps a week yeah uh, it is literally impossible yeah. for us to do yeah the fact that we're getting this done Honestly, kind of miraculous. Like, yeah. I don't generally try to pat us on the back too much, <laughs> but it's been really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm never home. Yeah. But uh, we've made it work. Yeah. And we'll continue to make it work for Mr. Selfridge. Uh, that podcast is called The Palm Court, mm-hmm. a Mr. Selfridge podcast. And then once we're finished with that, we will pick up the first two seasons of Peaky Blinders on Netflix. Uh, that podcast is called Family Meeting. Right. Uh, which we're really excessively proud of that name. We're, yeah, we think like, it's as great. good as the Palm Court is. <laughs> it's a very good name. Yeah, like the Peaky Blinders name because we had to think about it. Yeah, a it, lot. It took a while. We can still call you cousins on that one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and I mean, we're still kind of working out in our minds what, I mean, you know, it's still going to be basically the same format. Yeah, we might do some things a little bit tweaks differently. there might be yeah. or things like that. And also how all the various, like, feeds will work. We don't yeah. really know anything about that. We're so we'll have to out, get though. that straightened don't out. Don't worry. Yeah. But, you know, when when we know, you'll know. And uh, so in between there, uh, I think we're going to finally finish the new Upstairs Downstairs Series 1, at least. Right. Uh, we've kind of left everybody hanging on that one for quite a while. Where's Spargo? Where is Spargo? Oh, my God. Did you know there's like a bar or a restaurant somewhere in San Francisco called Spargo? I did not. It is. It's in San Francisco. <laughs> it is. Uh, oh, God. What street is it? Shoot. I can't remember what street it is. Well, I anyway, imagine we can find it. We can't. It's, it, no, it's in one of the Embarcadero centers. Mm-hmm. Like, and it is hilarious like i walked by and i was like spargo it's actually i think it might be like a men's like hair salon actually <laughs> now so that maybe I'm, not the best place for dinner maybe not i don't know <laughs> barbicide is delicious it looks good yeah so we'll po- probably do that and we're also thinking since there's all this additional content on pbs mm-hmm. uh that's not going in these recaps of the uk cut uh, we'll probably do a one-off episode going through all of those scenes yeah. and talking about them and criticizing this particular pa- practice because <laughs> right. it's kind of irritating. Agreed. Although I guess, I don't know, it's an interesting way for PBS to try and like recapture the viewers who are going to watch it ahead of airtime Yeah. Uh, with, you know, good old fashioned analog programming. Right. You know? Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, their core audience isn't going to use the internet mm-hmm. for the same reason they don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, no, but I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting tactic, but I think it's fundamentally an artistically bankrupt one. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, harsh words, but I mean, I understand. Like, you know, the show's the show. What's. Yeah, you know? like, which one's the director's cut? Exactly. You know? Well, yeah. it's like when we got Amadeus yeah. on DVD and it was, you know, the director's cut and the director's cut was terrible. Right. We were like, no, man, we want to see the Oscar winning version. Yeah, the one that people liked. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of the plan for right now. So we'll go from Downton stuff into Mr. Selfridge into Peaky Blinders and then, uh, presumably regular type hiatus programming. Yeah. Yeah. We're not 100% sure what that looks like as that will not be happening until like July. Right. Uh, yeah, but we're excited. Yeah, like, absolutely. This is, this no, is going to be really fun. Uh, if you've not watched Mr. Selfridge or Peaky Blinders yet, this is a great time to get caught up. Peaky <laughs> Blinders in particular is super binge-worthy. Yeah, absolutely. I we mean, got, it's, it's, we got really excited and just rewatched some of it the other day. Yeah. So we could watch it as civilians one last time. <laughs> right. Before we have to start criticizing things. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's very, I mean, it, that one's much more of a departure, obviously, from Yeah, from we're really going after done. those straight white male dollars <laughs> right. with that one. So if you know any straight white men <laughs> don't like Downton Abbey, they don't like Mr. Selfridge, uh, this show is really violent. Yes. There's, you know, prostitutes, there's opium, there's horse racing, there's razor blades and hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Killian Murphy. Yeah. If you're not a straight white man, <laughs> I mean... I think even straight white men have to concede I mean, that Killian Murphy is one of the most attractive people on the planet. Have you seen his eyelashes? I have, <laughs> repeatedly. It's got Winston Churchill on a train. It does have Winston... The worst... <laughs> the worst Winston Churchill we've well, ever seen committed to film. Yeah, and if you'd like to hear more on that, stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> so, all right. Yes. Wow, that was a long intro. <laughs> right. 
So sorry. I'm not sorry. Yeah. No, it was, there was useful information. Yeah. In and we're excited about it. That's right. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, now. Speaking of things we're excited about. Yes. This recap. Yeah. We love this episode. We really Let's did. Let's talk about it. Okay. So we see a train pulling up to the station. Rosamond gets off and is greeted by the Dowager Countess. Rosamond is surprised that she would come meet her at the train. That's out of character, but the Dowager says that she is taking Rosamond straight to the house to get change to go straight to dinner. Rosamond asks when Edith left, and the Dowager says she doesn't know precisely. They were all at that point to point. Uh, and Rosamond asks what they're going to say to people uh, about this awkward scenario. And the Dowager says she's been up all night, and she's come to the conclusion that they have to tell McGee. Rosamond says that that's a betrayal, but the Dowager says that... Betrayal! <laughs> you ruined my life! Betrayal! You twist in the night! Yeah, also... Betrayal! <laughs> betrayal! Yeah! Yeah, and anyway, you know, I mean, you're just betraying Edith. Right? <laughs> like, like it's nobody her. feels any loyalty to her whatsoever. Also, Edith has betrayed the terms of this particular agreement at least twice. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I don't think we want to start pointing recriminating fingers, yeah. Rosamond. If you want, you know, if you want people to keep your secret, don't go like exposing your secret in this way. Yes, agreed. A- anyway, beyond that, the Dowager says that if anything happened to Edith and McGee found out that Rosamond and the Dowager had known, McGee would never forgive them, and the Dowager says she Dowager says she would be right to, uh, and it is her right as a mother to know. Rosamond asks, "What about Lord Grantham?" And the Dowager says, "He's a man. Men don't have rights." And I'm like, "Oh God, don't tell Gamergate about this." Uh, actually, it's about ethics and baby stealing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. You know, that's it. That's a hoary old chestnut, right? Like to be like, "Oh, men don't have rights." It just strikes me as being a little bit, like, much for the Dowager to say. It maybe like, is. I get what she's saying, right. but it's well, also... I, I, yeah, but I mean, I think the, the point of it is more... I mean, it's a snappy way of putting it, but really what she's saying is she has no obligation to protect men's rights. You know, That's fair. That they can handle, you know, they have all the power, so let them worry about their rights. Yeah. And she'll worry about her uh, daughter-in-law's rights. Yeah. That's all fair. Okay, whatever. Sure. <laughs> Downstairs, uh, Carson tells Mrs. Hughes that Rosamond is coming. Hughes says that it really sucks that they've got guests to deal with, uh, with Edith suddenly disappearing. Right. And Carson says they couldn't put them off without explaining, and Mrs. Hughes, uh, correctly points out it's going to be a funny evening. <laughs> Not funny haha, funny oh. <laughs> In the library, McGee says that they still don't know anything. Uh, Branson says that they know that Edith is in London from the station master. That's where she bought her ticket to, uh, to, uh, to King's Cross, in fact. Oh, well, she's clearly at platform nine and three quarters. Right. Which is going to make it difficult to find her. Edith really is like the house elf of this show. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> throw a sock at her. <laughs> Set her free. <laughs> Lord Grantham asked where she could be hiding, and then as the camera pulls back, we see that Gilly Blake and Maybelline Fox are all also there. And I'm like, <laughs> so, Gilly's like, so should we leave? Uh, but Mary says that it doesn't matter because they've got Dickie Merton and the Cinderbees coming over anyway, so they might as well stay. I feel terrible for adult men who can't get shit of the name Dickie. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Like, yeah. Dick is bad enough. Yeah. But Dickie? Like, you're an English lord. You know, do something about it. Pass a motion. 
That's their Achilles heel, man. <laughs> Ridiculous sounding adult names. Yeah, Dicky, Shrimpy. <laughs> God. High school must have been terrible. Yeah. Just lucky Lord Grantham isn't called Bobby. <laughs> Branson suggests putting off Dicky Merton and the Cinderbees, which sounds like a up and coming band. What? Dicky Merton <laughs> and the Cinderbees? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh man, that could be, you know, cause like there's wizard rock. Oh, right. There should yeah. be Downton rock. We already have, uh, what is the name of our fake Downton band? Right. We had one. <laughs> yeah. It's like purple colored hat or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, we've got, well, we've got emails about it somewhere. Yeah. We'll figure it. Don't worry guys. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we really need an intern at this point <laughs> just to manage the mythology of this show. <laughs> right. It's Kind of ridiculous. Yeah. We need our very own Alistair Bruce. We do. We need we need an upstairs downstairs oracle. We need it to measure the distance between our beverages. <laughs> They're fairly close. Anyway, Rose says that Dickie Merton and the Cinderbees are looking forward to coming. She really doesn't want them to cancel because she wants to see Atticus. Uh-huh. Mary said, yeah, Mary's like, uh, you're looking forward to it. And she's right. I doubt the cinder bees are, you know, that excited. Like, I think they're, I don't, I, I, don't, think, you I know, don't think they're dreading it or anything. The, the crawlies like, are persons of interest to them. Yeah. You know, like. I'm just saying, if they got put off and, you know, rescheduled, they'd yeah, be like, that's a good uh, point. fine. They'd probably know. be like, oh, good, because, you know, that point to point really ripped up the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go out there and replace all the divots. Personally. So Lord Grantham says they just have to act like Edith has gone to stay somewhere. They don't know where or why or when. And but. again, why are they having this whole conversation in front of Gilly? Yeah. Like, for some reason, I'm less bothered that Mabel Lane Fox and Blake are there. Well, they're people of the world. They are people. They're not going to go blabbing about it. Or yeah. is Gilly's going to, like, you know, trip <laughs> into, you know, a journalist. <laughs> right. And be like, oh, hey, uh, Edith, gone. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knows where. Oh, wait, don't tell anyone. <laughs> right. Was I not supposed to say that? I found it very confusing. <laughs> Rosamond and the Dowager arrive, and Rosamond goes to McGee and says that she's sorry. And Mary says, Edith's gone away. So what? <laughs> Man, that haircut has really unleashed Mary's bitchiness. Maybe the like, new fashions really are immoral. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I've never... <laughs> It's the devil's haircut from that Beck song. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Everything old is new again, man. (laughs) Boy, Beck, trending. Right? (laughs) This is actually, this is already too late. Like, a week after the Grammys is too late. Yeah, that's true. I made a joke about Beck last night when I was drunk. (laughs) And, I mean, people liked it, but, you know. Yeah. Whatever. You think I give a damn about a Grammy? Half you Kanye's can't even stomach me, <laughs> let alone stand me. Blake suggests going for a walk with Gillian Maybelline Fox to avoid this increasingly awkward situation. A Mary Lane, Maybelline Fox says that Gilly must know the gardens pretty well. Uh, he knows Mary's garden, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How green is her valley? <laughs> <laughs> the Dowager suggests that she and Rosamond also take some air with McGee. Lord Grantham understandably asks why, and the Dowager says, when I say we need some air, we need some air. McGee's like, all right. She tells Mary to look after the children when they get there, and Mary's like, oh, I usually just look at them. I suppose (laughs) I can continue doing that. 
But then Thomas enters and tells McGee that Mrs. Pigman has arrived to see her. Dun dun dun. Dowager and Rosamond look at each other in dismay as McGee says to show Mrs. Pigman into her sitting room and tells them to enjoy their walk. Lord Grantham offers to take them, but the Dowager is like, Why would I want to walk? Which, listen, she's super like. She's pinging all over the place in this episode. She is. I guess this Edith thing has really unsettled her. Yeah, I think it really has. Which, you know, actually it makes sense. Like later in the episode, like we get some some serious dowager emoting. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, her whole life is changing. Yeah. She wasn't ever expecting it to. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Gilly, Blake, and Maybelline Fox are enjoying the classic walk a quarter mile to the fake ruins and then turn around and walk back route that people seem to enjoy on this show. Yeah, we've seen this multiple times. I've heard they have gardens. Right. But I don't think we've ever seen them. Or at least not since Matthew got out of his wheelchair. Yeah, maybe then. I feel like Mary used to bop around with him in the gardens. Right, because I'm trying to think. I guess we saw gardens like in Scotland, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I anyway. remember when they were going to like move into that smaller house. Oh my god, yeah, Downton Place. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Maybelline Fox uh, says she's going to go in and change. And I'm like, you've been gone for like five minutes. <laughs> like, I don't understand right. what's happening here. Yeah. Gilly says he'll see her at dinner. And she says, not if I see you first. <laughs> we're flirting. <laughs> and then Blake speaks for everyone when he says he can't understand why Gilly would prefer Mary to Maybelline Fox. But Billy... <laughs> But Gilly says he can't break it off with Mary because, suffice to say, it wouldn't be honorable. Because I'm the most obvious person in the world. Right. Gilly. Yeah. God. <laughs> I'm starting to think that the Gilly that Jack Donaghy talks about <laughs> on 30 Rock. Yeah. When he was a grade A moron. <laughs> is this Gilly. Yeah. That guy can eat my poo. Blake's like, um, isn't it up to Mary whether or not it's honorable? Like, mm-hmm. she has told you repeatedly to take a hike. Yeah. But Gilly says it's not really what she wants. And he asks if, you know, what with her devil's haircut, she <laughs> looks like someone trying to lose a suitor. Blake explains that Mary's instinct is to hold every man in thrall, but her wish is to break up. Uh, Gilly is not convinced by this, and Blake wishes he would be. As, as do we all. Yeah, because yeah. it's like, Blake, like, Gilly... She's not even thinking about you anymore. Yeah, she's just not that into you. She really isn't. Yeah. In the boot room, Bates tells Anna about... In the boot room. (laughs) In the boot room. (laughs) Bates tells Anna about a letter from a Mr. Brooke, who was apparently one of their tenants. Oh, that guy who married Meg March? (laughs) Yeah, that's the one. Uh, And he's got a new job. So they need a new tenant for their house that they have in London that we'd all pretty much forgotten about. Anna says not to be ungrateful about the hassle and that she blesses Mama Bates every day for leaving them that house. When you have property, you have choices. Anna suggests asking that they ask for some time off. Shouldn't be a problem. Nope. Can't imagine. I mean, what are they all up to now at this point? Like eight weeks of paid leave? <laughs> and, uh, Yorkshire estate crumbles. <laughs> Under weight of too much vacation. <laughs> <laughs> just a picture of Edith, like, buried up to her <laughs> We're not sure how it happened. One day it just started, and it never stopped. It started with a bunch of filthy shoes. <laughs> so, yeah, Anna says they, should go, they can go check out their house and see what they want to do with it. 
Bates smiles and says that wherever he sees a problem, she sees possibilities. And the scene ends without anything horrible happening. Hey, that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, up in McGee's room, she asks the Dowager Countess and Rosamond if they both knew mm-hmm. uh, about Edith's predicament. Mrs. Pigman said that Rosamond went to see the child. And Rosamond admits that and says Edith didn't want her to tell McGee. McGee realizes that this all explains the bewildering trip to Switzerland that <laughs> occurred last season. Yeah. Rosamond asks what she was supposed to do since uh, Edith didn't go through with getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which phrase McGee does not appreciate no she's like uh hello this is my grandchild yeah anyway mcgee asks what the dowager countess knew and the dowager says she knew about the baby but she had thought it was still in switzerland right and mcgee asks if they ever thought to involve her and she says that rosamond looked at the the little girl and never thought it was mcgee's business Mm -hmm. the dowager countess says that they wanted to contain it to make as little noise as possible McGee asks what's changed, and the Dowager says it must have been the Gregson news. Uh, she, w- yeah. Yeah, she was so upset about the way the show violated its own chronology that she was like, I'm out. <laughs> I can't be part of this. Rosamond asks, adds that Mrs. Pigman was being difficult. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Whatever. Yeah, definitely her fault. Yeah. So anyway, Rosamond and the Dowager thought the child should just be sent abroad, and McGee says, well, now we have it. Okay. All right, Wingus and Dingus. (laughs) You have managed to fuck this up in every way humanly possible. Yeah. And the Dowager asks if McGee will say anything to Lord Grantham. McGee says it's not their secret to tell, but they need to find Edith and find out what Edith wants to do. Yeah. If they had had McGee project managing this pregnancy from the Mm get-go, I think we all would have been a lot happier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, also, wouldn't it have made more sense for McGee to go to Switzerland with Edith? Like, I don't know. I also think it's so weird on this show that, like, the daughters have, like, no relationship with McGee, even yeah. though she is, like, a dope lady yeah. that helps you solve your problems. Yeah. No, it is It is interesting. Well, and I mean, I do remember, like, early, early on, they were really bitchy to her about her being American. Right, right. And I don't know, because, like, they just haven't said that quite so much. Yeah, well, I think it's just one of those things where they... You know, it's not something they probably think about as much anymore, yeah. but it's just the pattern that was set yeah. younger in their younger lives. Well, and it's like they assume just because their father fucks everything up that their mother also <laughs> is going to fuck everything up or that she can't be trusted to keep a secret. Right. Which she obviously can. Yeah. She's... She didn't tell anybody about Mr. Pamuk. That's right. Mm-hmm. So Mary's walking downstairs and Hughes comes up behind her and asks her about that whole train ticket thing. And then, oh my God, Baxter happens by and hangs out in a doorway. She's like a weird barnacle. She like, is. Like, that's the closest I can come to describing her. Like, she's just always there. Yeah. She's like the boar whisperer. <laughs> like, oh, is this scene too interesting? I'm Baxter. <laughs> I'm here to be extremely boring. And that was a weird accent. That was a weird it accent. It wasn't Baxter's accent. No, it wasn't. Baxter's accent. That's another good tongue twister. Uh, you're right. That is. Baxter's accent. Irish diaspora. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm just like, Baxter, get out. There's nothing for you here. There's no good can come of this for you or anyone. Anyway, Hughes explains how the ticket is proof of innocence. Mary says she burnt it because obviously neither Anna Hughes nor Mary has ever before seen a train ticket or understands what it means, like that they get torn. No, I know. And that is, this is the second chronological violation. Yeah. Like if they saw that it wasn't used, 
But I mean, obviously that wasn't the case. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like like they they know how tickets work. Yeah, you know they go to London all the time. Yeah, at least Anna and Mary do. Sure. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yes, it is. In happier news, (laughs) the Cinderbees walk in as they're playing the people entering Downton Abbey theme, (laughs) and Rose greets Atticus uh, very excitedly, and I'm like, have a little fucking decorum, Rose. Uh, she introduces Mary, who walks over, and Lady Cinderby says they admired her courage at the point to point. Again, why was that so dangerous? Uh, you know, you can fall off and break your neck. Also, why Get are trampled they like, by oh, horses. I admire your courage. Like, did you think you were going to throw a point to point and nobody was going to show up to ride in it? Like, well, we're having a point to point, but it's very dangerous. So maybe you don't want to yeah, do it. We're assuming nobody will come. The course is covered in spikes. Yeah, like, like it's very... It like you've heard of the most dangerous game, it's kind of like that. <laughs> All the horses will be on fire. Like it's just. <laughs> At any rate, Mary says it was either courage or foolhardiness, and takes them over to see Mama and Papa. Uh, Lord Cinderby looks skeptical about everything. But that just might, his face might just be frozen that way. It seems that way, yeah. It's unclear at this point. (laughs) And then Rose hangs back with Atticus to say they're having rather a drama, which he mustn't let on about. And Atticus says, our first secret. Yeah, that boy is smitten. That dude loves her too much. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, it's really fun Mm -hmm. to be watching a couple fall in love where it's not like, I'm going to throw up a whole bunch of bizarre, random obstacles Mm -hmm. that don't make any sense. Yeah. Where nobody's wearing the St. Valentine's Day massacre dress. <laughs> like, it's just, this is like a fun, easy relationship. Yeah. You know, and they're young and they're happy. You know, they didn't and have to fight in the war. Yeah. There's, they're well suited to each other yeah. in, you know, rank and title as they far as that goes. They enjoy discussing Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good time. Yeah. In the kitchen, Patmore gives Molesley a dish for him to bring upstairs. Molesley asks Daisy if they should work on Vanity Fair that night. Daisy is hesitant about it, and he's like, oh, I'll ask you later. I'm also hesitant. Everybody's like, Kelly, read Vanity Fair. And I'm like, mm, what if I'm living it? <laughs> I don't see that I need to read the book. Fair point. Possibly not applicable in Daisy's case. That's but. also true. <laughs> she probably just doesn't want to hang out with Molesley. That was my feeling. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, sometimes you got to like let Daisy make the next move yeah. and not be quite so pushy. Anyway, Carson comes in to say that Merton has arrived, and Patmore says that she's ready when Carson is, and it's sort of, he's sort of weirdly, like, bitchy about it. It's strange. Patmore says that Daisy is glum, and Daisy says, am I, like people always do on this show. When they're glum. Right. People are like, oh, really? I didn't realize that I looked glum. Just thought I was gazing off into space in a, you know, perky fashion. Can you show me that chart of facial expressions again? <laughs> because I think I'm confused. <laughs> Patmore asks if Daisy's enthusiasm for learning is drying up, and Daisy asks Patmore if she's read the papers. Pat- <laughs> <laughs> and Patmore says, who has the time? It's only me and Madge that work anymore. <laughs> Poor fucking Madge. <laughs> Free Madge! <laughs> Daisy says that Prime Minister MacDonald is limping from crisis to crisis, and she doubts that the Labour government will last the year. Uh, another example of period piece foresight because it won't last the year (laughs) patmore says not to take it personal but daisy does she feels that they are trapped in a system that gives them no value or freedom patmore says speak for yourself which is again i love their political discussions Mm -hmm. 
because you know that's Pat Moore's whole that's Pat Moore's conservative is like you're telling me that I don't have value and that the system that I've lived my life in is wrong and she doesn't like that no Daisy says that she does speak for herself and wonders what's the point of bettering herself uh, and then Thomas comes in to say that the dinner is starting yeah good point Daisy yeah uh, I feel that way frequently mm-hmm Anna is in the servants' hall cleaning some jewelry, and Bates comes in and sits down. Baxter comes in because it seems like something interesting is about to happen, and she's <laughs> got to put a stop to it. Uh, Anna greets her, and then Baxter says she thinks that they think that she has hurt them. Anna denies it, but Baxter's sure. She says she gave the police nothing that would stand up, and then Bates asks why she said anything. And I'm like... Are you unaware after having spent a stint in murder prison how police work? Yeah. Like... Like, if they want to make you answer questions, they can. Yeah. Anyway, Baxter says she was in a difficult position... And Bates is like, uh, now we're in a difficult position. And I'm like, you're basically in the same position you've been in. Like, nothing changed. Right. She didn't, she really didn't give them anything. Baxter says she's very sorry. And Bates says he has to clean some <laughs> shoes. This is the funniest thing Bates has said. Yeah, it is. In eons. Yeah. Like, since, like, series one or two, when him and Anna <laughs> were still fun and cute. Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah. No, and I'm like, Baxter... Why do you even talk to anyone if you're not going to add anything of substance to the conversation? Right. Like, I was in a difficult position. Maybe do you want to tell the only other person in this house who's also been in jail? Yeah. No, but like, and it can also you not, is like... Like, compare, you know, prison tattoos or something. <laughs> and it's like... Yeah, I didn't tell them anything useful is like a one-sentence summary of Baxter's life. <laughs> At dinner, Lord Grantham asks Lady Cinderby if she's enjoying Yorkshire, and she says that that they and Yorkshire have to get used to each other. He asks if they've had any insurmountable troubles, and Lady Cinderby says that they know what they're up against and are used to it. Lord Grantham says that they'll have no trouble at Downton. McGee's father was Jewish. Not that the Dowager ever seems to remember that. And Lady Cinderby says that that isn't always a guarantee of tolerance, so she's glad Lord Grantham has has said that, you know, that they'll be tolerant. Mm-hmm. She says that Atticus is way into Rose. Cut to Atticus being way into Rose. Ah, uh, he's like when we started dating. Yeah. That's how you were all the time. <laughs> and I was always being, you know, lacking decorum. Yes. I continue to lack decorum. No, it's true. But that's why you're still just as into me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lady Cinderby finds Rose quite charming. Lord Grantham asks if Lord Cinderby approves. And she says he needs some time. I am a huge fan of Lady Cinderby. I am as well. She seems like a very savvy woman Mm -hmm. in the same way that McGee is. Yeah. Well, because they're new Mm money-ish. And, you know, they've bought a new estate. They've got to convince people to like them. And they have some, you know, obstacle in that they are... They're practicing... uh, Right. Judea... Jews. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. It always... It's like, you know, again on 30 Rock, when they say Puerto Rican, that always sounds wrong. Yeah. Uh, Anytime I say Jews, I'm like, that's wrong. You shouldn't say that. Right. I don't know. Anyway. uh, They're members of the tribe. (laughs) But uh, somebody tweeted at us an article, and I retweeted it, uh, about how McGee's not really Jewish. Right, right. Which, you know... Like, yeah, but right. nobody at this particular juncture was going to, like, make that distinction. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. I mean, purely from a, like, if you were Jewish and you, like, you know, you wanted to be like, oh, you're not actually Jewish. Right, right. Like, that was more of the thing. 
Right. But, well, I, but, did, I, mean, but I did like you know, the, this article. They pointed out that Shirley MacLaine seemed to play Mac L as if she was Jewish. Mm. And I think I had assumed that. Right. Um, and I forget where this all got pulled from, but basically, like... McGee's dad was Jewish, but the kids were raised like Episcopalian or something. Right. And that, that gets brought up in the next scene here. Oh, is that where it was found out? <laughs> well, I don't know where it was. Fa- I don't, I think it was established before. And I would also say that in the scene just now, you know, Lord Grantham doesn't say that McGee's Jewish. He says her father was. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. actually. So, you know, yeah. there is that distinction. So she never identified as being right, Jewish. Right. Uh, anyway, so that's all very interesting. If you go back on Twitter, the article is really thorough mm-hmm. and it's actually very interesting. And it um, it did a lot of research into like the the sort of financial situation for a you know dry goods merchant in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. which is where they're from. And yeah, yeah. I just got excited. You know? <laughs> I just get excited when they talk about Cincinnati. I know. Dude. Also, his name was Isidore. Oh right. And I think that is such a great name. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. Okay. So Lord Cinderby asks McGee on this subject if her mother ever considered converting, and McGee doesn't believe she did it, that she did. He asks her if it was difficult having a different religion from her father, and she says she doesn't think it was. She never really thought about it. He asks if she was ashamed of her father, and McGee points out that they never changed their name. Nope. Unlike the uh, Aldridges. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Mm-hmm. Take that, Cinderby. <laughs> Yeah, and Lord Cinderby is like, okay, touche. Uh, he says it was his grandfather's decision, and he had considered changing their name back, but the family felt that they were English and wanted to stay English. That's got to be tough. Like, yeah. if your family changed their name generations prior, yeah, like you know that they did that, but it's just like it. I mean, it's a hassle. Yeah, I didn't even want to change my name when I got married to you, and I didn't, right? Because like that's a lot of paperwork. It really is. And I don't care. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Rosamond asks Branson uh, if he's decided whether or not he's leaving, uh, but he says he wants to make sure he does the right thing, well, uh, which is a solid yeah. sentiment. Uh, he doesn't want to disrupt Sibby's life and then regret it. And then Rosamond says, you know, everybody's going to want you to stay. And he says that makes it harder. I continue to not understand why he wants to leave in the first place. I agree. At this point. It just, it, it's, it doesn't feel particularly motivated. No, I he mean, seems he, doesn't, to, he doesn't seem unhappy. No, he seems to enjoy his job. Yeah, he, you know, Sibby seems to be doing very well, mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, shown by her, you know, constant winning of Katie's <laughs> yeah, baby. her awesome run of dominance. Yeah. No, so, I mean, and plus, I haven't heard anything about, uh... God, what is his name? The actor who plays Branson. Leach. Yeah, Alan Leach. I haven't heard anything about him leaving. Yeah. Like, all I've heard was that he and Cumberbatch were talking shit about Down Abbey. Right, right, right. Which, you know, seems like a precursor to him getting killed uh, (laughs) in some way. Yeah, I don't know. Like, this is all leading up to some spinoff series with Branson in Boston. Starts a little bar, calls it Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so mad at you right now. Um, no, and I mean, I don't know, I'm curious. Yeah. Because it's like, is he gonna leave and then, like, come back? Like, I, you know, I have no idea what they're gonna do in the sixth series. Right. But, yeah. You know, I just, I haven't heard any casting. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird. Atticus tells Rose that he heard that Edith had got, 
uh, had inherited Gregson's company, and she confirms that. He asks if somebody should perhaps then telephone the office to see if they know where Edith might be. Rose says he's clever. He says it seems rather obvious to him. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, seriously, everybody? Like... I love how anytime they're faced with a crisis, they all, like, their brains just turn into mush. They're like, duh, Edith gone. <laughs> yeah, like, if Atticus has come up with this. Where's she gone? <laughs> if Atticus has come up with the solution, you should have come up with the solution. Yeah, because you know what? Atticus may be super into Rose, but he is a dumb dummy. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Like, he is clearly a rich kid with a cushy job. Yeah. Okay? He's a real gilly. <laughs> Rose says that Lady Cinderby is hitting it off with Lord Grantham, but he says that Lord Cinderby is the tough nut. Rose says that her parents are the other way around. Shrimpy is nice, but her mother is the tough nut. And Atticus says, well, then we will crack them together. They are so adorable. They are. I kind of can't handle it. (laughs) Gilly tells Mabel Lane Fox that it's strange how some people get married and married and they can't manage at once. Yeah. Uh, you're the only one, like, you could have been married two years ago. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why you're complaining. Right. Uh, Mabel Lane Fox says that dogs barking and wrong trees spring to mind. Yeah. Which, boom, mm-hmm. nicely done. A tree for Gilly. She says she's sorry if he feels like she's following him around, but she can't give up. They could be very happy. And Gilly asks if he won't be happy without her. Mabel Lane Fox remembers her mom saying that happiness is a choice. Some people select a course that only leads to disappointment. Gilly asks if that's him, and Mabel Lane Fox hopes not. Uh, and I mean, Gilly, listen, yeah. literally everybody is setting you up right. to be very happy. Yeah, yeah. Everybody in the world wants this to happen. So, you know. No, and again... What's Mabel Lane Fox getting up to in her spare time? I must know. No, it, I meant to mention this back when Gilly was talking to Blake, when he's like, oh, like, blah, 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 honorable. And I feel like Blake wouldn't be like, she's smoking poles all over <laughs> England. Like, what are you so concerned about, dude? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. This isn't before the war, man. No, it's not. Not we at all. We all learned about oral sex from the French, and we're <laughs> excited to do it. <laughs> Oh, the French. Why can't the French? (laughs) (laughs) Isabel kind of awkwardly claps her hands to get everybody's attention. Uh, Everybody turns to her. She's sitting at the head of the table for some reason. I wasn't sure exactly how that would work out. It's been a while since we covered that. But I think, if I recall correctly, the... um, Master and mistress of the house were generally seated at the center of the table, mm-hmm. like lengthwise. Yeah, yeah. And so sitting at the head wasn't necessarily like the thing. Right. The more important thing was to be able to talk to as many people as possible. Sure. Anyway, uh, she says that she has an announcement. Murdy asks her if she's sure, and she says she is. And she announces that she and Murdy are engaged. Hooray, Murdy! Yeah. Murdy <laughs> is a Murdy. It is happening, people. Uh, everybody's super excited, except for the Dowager. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham proposes a toast to the future Lady Merton, which the Dowager belatedly joins in. Isabel says it's the last thing she thought would happen. Murdy says that he forced her into it, but Isabel says that she wooed him into it, and she's terribly pleased that he did. Mary asks the Dowager what's up with her, and she says, unconvincingly, that she's worried about Edith. Mary says... Very convincingly. I can't think why. <laughs> The Dowager says that a lack of compassion can be as vulgar as an excess of tears. And that's tough on Mary because that is the only person 
that Mary respects to take criticism from. Yeah. No. So Mary needs to get her shit together. Yeah. Like yeah. your grandmother's not having it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and actually, Murdy and Isabel have a nice parallel going with Atticus and Rose. Mm-hmm. Because Atticus and Rose don't really, like, there's not all of this, like, money business tied up in their relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. he obviously has money, and that may be part of why. Yeah. Because, you know, she's got her title, which, uh, you know, no, yes, he will be Lord Cinderby after his father yeah okay sorry yeah. i don't know why i forgot how that worked <laughs> right um, <laughs> no i was just thinking because his last name was aldridge and i yeah, yeah, forgot yeah. how all that works sure anyway sure. um and then you know you've got murdy and isabel who also you know don't have any sort of material issues right right, right. uh so it's nice to sort of see this at both ends of the spectrum yeah well and this show is doing such a great job showing you know just the lives of older people yeah absolutely and the fact that you know once you stop being, you know, 25, <laughs> right. you still are totally interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes, you know, it goes all the way through even like with Mary and Edith. Like, yeah. you know, they're women in their 30s now. Mm-hmm. Despite the show, I think, constantly trying to convince us that they're in their like 20s. Right. But they might be late 20s. Very possible. Well, it's, so been, wait, it's is, been 12 years. It's been 12 years, and Mary was 18? We we think Mary was 18, which would put her at right at 30. Yeah, okay. So, so then Edith's probably like 27. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I can't remember how much time is between them. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're bad at timelines. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still happy to criticize them. Den of the Servant's Kitchen, Molesley asks Daisy, so how about it? Shall we discuss the vices of Becky Sharp? Uh, you know, that's an original pickup line. <laughs> hey, baby, you want to discuss the vices of Becky Sharp? Meow. <laughs> Daisy says that she is tired and hurriedly leaves. Molesley asks what's up, and pa- Patmore <laughs> explains about the labor government being in trouble. Patmore also says that Molesley wasn't so interested in Daisy's education when the homely liberal was around, and Molesley's like, oh, well, I wouldn't interfere with a professional. <laughs> Patmore says Molesley's missed out on his, on his vocation, and to tell Daisy, Molesley says that she wouldn't listen to him, and Thomas, who was in the room, says, well spotted. Oh, Thomas. Yeah. I hope you get something cool to do soon. I agree. Uh, and he suggests that they contact Mr. Mason. Hey! Yeah. And Patmore's like, well, that's actually a really good idea, Thomas. Mosley asks how they will get him to speak to Daisy, and Patmore will think on it. In the drawing room, Mitchie says she's sorry if she seems distracted, but she's very happy for Murdy. Murdy says he's planning to give a dinner for Isabel to meet his sons. Mary says she's met Larry, and Murdy says, let's hope she's forgotten about that. Yeah. Uh, if you will recall, this was uh, shortly after... Sybil and Branson came back to Downton. Correct. And that guy had uh had a boner for Isabel for <laughs> <laughs> That guy had a boner for Sybil and got really snotty about yeah. it at dinner and Branson got mega drunk and they yes. basically almost had a fight. Yeah. Um It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, not something that they want to revisit. Mary says that they should have the dinner at Downton to save the expense of finding another set to use. Yeah, clever. And she says that Murdy's her godfather and Isabel is the grandmother of her child. I like how she says she's the grandmother of my child, not my mother-in-law. Like, <laughs> right. 
so it seems only right that they should throw the party. And I'm not totally sure that it actually makes any sense. Yeah, it's a bit of a reach, but yeah. they, you know. Now, let's go on a walk out to those ruins. <laughs> McGee says, of course, and Murdy says she's very kind. Which is true. At the card table, Maybelline Fox tells Gilly that she wishes that they didn't know about, you know, the drama behind the scenes. Uh, Gilly says that she loves other people's secrets, and she says not anymore. He tells her that he can't say why he can't leave Mary, but she would understand again. Like, I do not think she would. I don't think I you think would. I think she would be like, wait a minute. So you banged her, and then she was like, bye. She was like, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought you should keep doing that. Yeah. Like, I don't think Mabel Lane Fox would have any sympathy for this situation whatsoever. Agreed. But anyway, she says, just promise me it's a struggle. And he says more than she knows. I doubt it. Yeah. When I think about Gilly's brain, I think <laughs> about Homer Simpson. Like when it's like, just like that cow or whatever. Yeah. Or dancing like, and like turkey in the straw. Yeah. Or like a monkey playing the yeah, cymbals. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the monkey playing the cymbals. <laughs> like a fancy monkey playing the cymbals. Right. Like sure. Like the one from Famine of the Opera. <laughs> Wearing a tuxedo. The Gilly of the Opera is here, and he won't leave. (laughs) (laughs) Lady Cinderby takes her leave of Lord Grantham, says it's been fun and they hope to host next time. Lord Grantham agrees, and they'll just have to wait on Rosicus. (laughs) Lord Cinderby says that there's no hurry, they're both young. Lady Cinderby whispers to Lord Grantham that she would be delighted if it works out, and then says goodbye to everybody else. So, you know, Lord Grantham has been told by her she's like listen i'm down that one's the problem like we're working on it right uh carson sends mosley up to get the door for everybody blake tells mary that it's clear that gilly and maybelline fox like each other mary says that gilly won't let her go but blake says that's because mary is refusing to make herself clear she keeps tugging his strings Mm -hmm. yep he says that if she sends a clear message he will go mary asks what that message is might i suggest go yeah that's a clear message or hey i don't like you mabel lane fox loves you yeah why don't you marry her which is what your original plan was two years ago right if you still don't understand i will start hitting you (laughs) (laughs) we don't recommend domestic violence (laughs) as a solution to any problem well this isn't domestic violence they're not in a relationship (laughs) oh my god we don't recommend violence (laughs) fine except on tv (laughs) Anyway, Blake says that they'll think of something. Probably not my idea. Probably not right. <laughs> Rose goes to McGee, Rosamond, and Dowager Countess and passes on Atticus's suggestion about Edith. Uh, and the Dowager says they weren't telling anyone, but Rose says Atticus isn't, quote-unquote, anyone. Mm-hmm. And McGee agrees. She says they could call, but maybe she should just go to the office in person. She tells Rose that Atticus is leaving, so Rose goes to say goodbye. McGee says she'll train up in the morning, which is very savvy of her. Yes. And Rosamond says she will also go, uh, which makes sense since she lives <laughs> Right. Probably a good idea. The Dowager Countess says she will stay, but she will have a horrible time worrying. Trust me. And McGee replies, how can you imagine I'll ever trust you again? Boom! Yeah. Oh! McGee out! Yeah. Like, I think we've undersold just how, like... M- like don't fuck with mcgee in this episode yeah like don't do it she is yeah anyway rosamond says that she didn't mean it but the dowager says it's the most honest thing cora has ever said to her yeah and that's probably true yeah yeah down at casa debates 
Anna brings Bates tea while he sits on his butt as usual. <laughs> hey, remember when he had that limp or whatever? <laughs> Bates asks if their life is overcomplicated, and Anna asks what he means. Uh, meanwhile, everybody and the viewing audience screams, yes! <laughs> He says that Patmore's buying a local house, and maybe they should do the same and rent it out and retire to it someday. Bates says that they had a dream once of having a small hotel, and selling their little house in London in London would get them something much bigger here in Yorkshire. Anna asks if murder prison might be over. Oh, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God, for them. Bates says that they seem to have accepted that he was in York, and Baxter didn't give them anything. Because she's pathologically incapable of contributing anything useful. Right. Which doesn't mean Bates is going to stop being a dick to her. Oh, no. So Anna says that they can plan their future again like normal people. Bates asks if that means what he thinks it means. Anna says that he said he believed her about the diaphragm. He says that he does believe her. He just intends to hold his own misunderstanding over Anna's head for the rest of their fucking lives. Uh, yeah, Tom, that's how you go about being married. He's a classy dude. <laughs> He says he doesn't he doesn't know why Mary wanted the diaphragm. I'm like, there's not really that many possible explanations. Yeah, there is actually one. Yeah. Like she wasn't crafting with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna knit mine. <laughs> uh so Bates asks if there's anything wrong with the two of them in that they haven't had a child yet. Anna says no, it takes some people longer than others. Uh, Bates what is she a doctor? <laughs> right. Bates asks what he would do without her. Uh, you know, brood, I imagine. Wouldn't he still be in murder prison? Yeah, possibly. I forget. I feel like she was pretty instrumental yeah, think, in getting him think, out of there. I think Sherlock Anna was part of that she whole was. thing. She was. Yeah. She definitely was. Anna Bates P.I. was <laughs> right, that thing? Yeah. Mary walks into the library where Lord Grantham and Branson are and says that they caught the train, uh, which we assume is Blake, Gilly, and Mabel Lane Fox. Right. Lord Grantham asks if Gilly is the one who will marry Mary, and she doesn't think so. Why are you just now telling him this? (laughs) Anyway, Lord Grantham asks about Blake, and she says that Blake decided not to marry Mary before Mary decided not to marry Blake. Right. (laughs) Lord Grantham says she doesn't. He doesn't suppose she's interested in his opinion. She agrees, and then uh, suddenly remembers that she had to go see the Dowager Countess. So, still the devil's haircut going on there. Lord Grantham laments to Branson about missing out on Gilly as he strokes Isis, who he says is really not herself. But yeah. then asks Branson if he's got any marriage prospects himself. Out of no, like yeah, very much out of nowhere. When did you become Yenta, Lord Grantham? <laughs> like when? Since when have you cared? Now that the entail is all settled, like who gives a shit? Uh, Lord Grantham says they don't want Branson to be alone, and Branson uh, says just someone who shares the family's values. Lord Grantham uh, pretends to disagree by saying he wants him to be with someone who feels friendly toward them. Right. Uh, I hate this scene. Yeah. Well, let's just get through this. Right. Branson agrees and says he doesn't blame Lord Grantham for the homely liberal leaving. And he also didn't want to spend his life in a bare knuckle fight uh, with somebody who looks like a bare knuckle. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Grantham says something's changed about Branson. And Branson says, yes, I finally got my period. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's written to his cousin in Boston for advice. Like, I would never write to anyone in Boston for advice. Yeah, all he's learned so far is that the Yankees suck. (laughs) Uh, Lord Grantham says he's sorry if his bad manners were the cause of Branson, like, wanting to leave, which there was no cause, so... Right, yeah. 
Branson says the family are what they are and he does love them and it'll be hard to go. Lord Grantham says it'll be hard on both sides and nobody cares. Right. Or under, yeah. <clears throat> I just don't see them pulling the trigger on this. Yeah. It just is, it, yeah. When it's just there, again, you just don't feel it from Branson what this is that he wants or gets out of this. No, I mean, he used to have motivation mm-hmm. and this is completely separate from our, you know, anti-Branson Right. Rabidity of the current year. But like, (laughs) you know, when he was a chauffeur, he had like dreams of banging a rich lady. Yeah. And he did that. (laughs) You know, he married her. They got, you know, uh, jobs and stuff. Mm -hmm. He was going to be a journalist. Yeah. Like whatever happened to that? I know, right? Edith is a publisher now. (laughs) Yeah. Couldn't you write for that? What better, uh, you know, opportunity? Yeah. Like God, nepotism is a thing. If you can use it to your advantage, absolutely do that. Agreed. Don't work hard like the rest of us poor sats. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> In London, a receptionist at uh, Edith's place of business, we assume, tells McGee and Rosamond that she has no way of knowing if or when Edith will be coming in, and they close at six. McGee says, then they will wait until six, and Rosamond adds that they will come back in the morning and stay there for as long as it takes until they get to see Edith. Uh, they're not good at this. No, not particularly. The receptionist asks if she could just give Edith a message. McGee says that wouldn't be good enough as Edith walks out of her office with her head uh, reading some papers that she's carrying. Edith also sucks at this. Right. Rosamond sees Edith and grabs McGee. Uh, and by the way, Rosamond in this is wearing the most ridiculous hat. Her hat looks like Germany rejected. <laughs> It and it's huge. Yeah, it's enormous. Like, does Rosamond have her own secret baby that she's keeping under that hat? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Edith says that Rosamond has broken her word and told McGee. McGee says that Mrs. Pigman came to the house. So yeah, Edith, your genius plan <laughs> totally worked. Right. Edith asks what Mrs. Pigman wanted. McGee says that she felt that Edith had used her badly, a feeling that McGee shared. As do we. Yes. Edith says that she's not coming back. McGee says, let's not talk about it in the lobby. Rosamond invites Edith to come to dinner, and Edith says no. McGee says, well, in that case, fine. We will just discuss it right here in front of your new employees and give them all something to talk about. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. And Edith's like... There's a tea room at the end of the street. I wish it was the same tea room for Mr. Selfridge. I know, but then somebody would see them there. That's true. Somebody (laughs) would, and that would be a scandal. Yeah. Down at the Dower House, Mary asks how Spratt is doing. He says, everybody has his troubles, (laughs) m'lady. And uh, he leaves, and the Dowager explains about Danker. Oh, he doesn't leave. He's still there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. I promise I watched the show. (laughs) Spratt says that Danker takes after the Dachshund. How does he say it? The Dachshund? I think the Dachshund. Anyway, I say it Dachshund. Uh, If that's wrong, so sue me. Fair enough. Uh, He says that she takes after the Dachshund because she is untrainable. Um, I have, I don't know. My family had Dachshunds Mm -hmm. all the time. I mean, and... They were kind of untrainable, but I just assumed it was because my relatives were terrible pet owners. Right. You know? Well, I think he's talking about some specific dachshund. Okay. Like the... The famously untrainable dachshund of York. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, come on, watch this. Sit. (laughs) Nothing happens. Wild applause. (laughs) This is much better than that point to point no one showed up for. (laughs) 
Anyway, so the Dowager reprimands him for denigrating Danker in front of everybody. <laughs> right. Uh, Mary says it all sounds like trouble and tells the Dowager Countess when Murdy's coming for dinner with his sons. Mm-hmm. The Dowager isn't sure it's a good idea for Isabel to meet his sons, but Mary says, Larry won't make trouble now that Sybil's dead. Causing me to write, remember when Sybil wasn't dead? Yeah. That was so great. It was. <sighs> How'd that unicorn movie work out for you, Sybil? <laughs> Oh my god, which came on HBO the other night. Mm-hmm. And like we're like it came on and we were like show me Lady Sybil and there she was. <laughs> yeah. It was great. It was exciting. I watched it on mute for like a long time and I have <laughs> no idea what the fuck that movie is about. Fair enough. At any rate, Mary says she knows why the Dowager is upset about this engagement. And she says that the Dowager considered Isabel to be her protege and the Dowager has kept Isabel from harm. Which is weird, like, kind of, but I'm like, it wasn't like Isabel, like, Isabel didn't care about anything. Right. Anyway. Anyway, so it's difficult for the Dowager to accept that Isabel will be a leader of the county, and Mary says that their positions have changed, uh, but the Dowager just has to be bigger than that. This is so good. Like, this has got to be the, like, Emmy reel. Uh Uh-huh. For, for, at least as far as we've seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. The dowager asks if that's really what Mary thinks of her, and she says it's not that the change of rank that bothers her at all, it's that she's used to having a companion and a friend. Yeah. Mary says she'll still have the family, but the dowager's like, yeah, you all have your own lives, you're always training up to England, to <laughs> London, like, you know. Losing babies, yeah. finding babies. And uh, she had a lot in common with Isabel. And Mary says, uh, ba- Mary basically makes fun of her and saying, you know, Granny, you're positively dewy-eyed. Yeah. Although I think that's just the sort of standard British, Yeah, uh, let's all try to deflect this awkward emotion feeling. Uh-huh. And the Dowager says she regrets her confidence to Mary. Like, Mary, you better stop having that devil's haircut. Yeah. Like, this is your one ally mm-hmm. and she is pissed at you. Yeah. Um, but she says that for what it's worth, she doesn't think Isabel has ever looked up to her. Yeah. And I think that's true. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think they've had some mutual respect. Yeah. But Isabel never wanted to be the kind of person that the Dowager is. Yeah. And I think they've learned a lot from each other and the arc of their friendship is really interesting. Yeah. And they, you know, Isabel likes her now, mm-hmm. which she didn't originally, but yeah. she never looked up to her. No. Yeah. Branson and Sibby are playing Poo Sticks. <gasps> Poo Sticks! Yeah. This is very exciting for Tom. Yes. I am a big fan of that game. I played it many times in my youth in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Sibby wins. She's very excited. And Branson tells her to make a wish, which is not part of Poo Sticks as I played it, but fair enough. Uh, you know, he's uh, part of the landed aristocracy now. <laughs> they get all the wishes they want. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Might as well. We're rich. You yeah. can have it. <laughs> He tells Sibby that Edith went to London and asks what Sibby would say if they were to move far away. Sibby asks why. As do we. <laughs> yeah. Branson says it might be better for them to start a new life. Sibby asks why. Branson again fails to answer the question and just says that he hopes he's doing the right thing. Which is definitely like the vote of confidence you're looking for as a three-year-old. <laughs> right. She's like, do they have poo sticks in America? Like, what's in this for me? <laughs> Uh, Baxter Baxter's into the servants' <laughs> hall, where she tells Bates that she could swear the train ticket hadn't been used, and Anna says everything's moved on, and Baxter says she just wanted to be helpful. Uh, 
even though she's never been helpful ever in her entire life. Right, but it's a long-term dream of hers. Yeah. <laughs> like, someday I'll help someone. Bates is still unaccountably being a dick to her yeah. for something she had literally no control over. Yeah, and that didn't affect them, so I guess maybe And that things... ultimately was actually Thomas's fault. Right. So let's maybe, uh, let's actually move on and not just say that things have moved on. Yeah. So Mosley intervenes to say that Baxter's in a difficult position. And then Bates is like, oh, well, she keeps saying that. And I'm like, oh, are we ever going to stop talking about this? Yeah. Uh, Thomas comes in and asks Mosley to remove the bays from the tables. Bays being uh, the felt topper for card playing, I assume, mm-hmm, in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, also for billiards, but that generally is tacked on. Right. Bates says he's going up and Anna leaves as well. And uh, Thomas tells Baxter to ignore them. Baxter says she feels sorry for them, and he says to tell them about her thievery. Uh, she says she'd feel ashamed, which, again, Baxter, yeah. every problem you've had this season has been alleviated once you tell people about your thievery. Yeah. So maybe learn from your experiences. Yeah, for real. It's you, This has never worked out for you. No. Mary and Blake are talking on the phone. He has just learned that he is going to be sent to Poland for months as part of his government work. He asked her to come to London. She says she has plans in the morning, but he says he only needs her from around seven because he has a cunning plan. (laughs) She asks what she should wear, and he says, rags. We're going to the kinema. (laughs) Did people really? Okay. I mean, here's my thoughts on Julian Ovenden, who plays Charles Blake. So he is also a vocalist. Yeah. He has his own album, which always cracks me up. (laughs) Like, it's the kind of thing where it's like anybody, you know, who's ever been on Broadway, like, has an album that they sell, you know, at like the touring production that they're in. (laughs) Uh, But I'm like, I just feel like they, you know, Julian Ovenden was like, no, I want to pronounce it kinema. I found out like 4% of people did that, (laughs) and I want to be one of them. Now Alistair Bruce is like, curse you and your accurate historical knowledge. (laughs) Quit stealing my thunder. (laughs) My oracle thunder. (laughs) But yeah, we were delighted by him saying, rags, we're going to the kinema. (laughs) I was mostly delighted by him saying kinema. I know. But also the rags thing, because we've been saying that to each other a lot. (laughs) We have been. Lord Grantham comes by as Branson rings, or sorry, Lord Grantham comes by as Carson rings the gong. Uh, he says that he is worried about ISIS. And we are I- all worried about ISIS. Yes. He asks if Carson talked to Stapley, and he's apparently been having some kind of trouble getting hold of him. Uh, but Lord Grantham says he'll take ISIS down himself. Rose comes in and asks if the gong has gone. Uh, Lord Grantham says it just did, and he doesn't know why they're bothering to change since it's just like the family. And Rose says not to let the Dowager Countess hear him saying things like that. <laughs> Rose was having tea with Atticus in Ripon. Lord Grantham says that Rose doesn't want to rush things, but she says she does want to rush things, like Billio. Okay, I know I keep going back to this well, but dude, what happened to you, Rose? You used to be having weird extramarital affairs, and now you're saying things like Billio. Well? Just, ugh. She moved from a broken home into a God-fearing nuclear family, and uh, one thing led to another. Man. Started wearing sweater dresses. She sure did, although (laughs) I do like a nice sweater dress. I understand. I guess it's, you know, it's really kind of a trade-off, isn't it? I guess it is. Well, because I'm excited for her and this situation, you know? Right. Yeah, as are we all. It's all very cute and nice. Lord Grantham says that it's a big thing that she wants to rush into, and she says that he sounds like Lord Cinderby, uh, who apparently has made it clear that he's not super happy about Atticus marrying a shiksa. Mm-mm. Uh, 
she needs to watch that episode of Sex in the City where Charlotte like does her like Jewish education in like a week and then like is like super Jewish and then her husband is like, Yeah, I don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh so unfortunately she does not have that option. She does not have that option. Sadly for everyone. Uh, he also says that Rose should write to her parents. And Rose says that her dad won't, he doesn't, she doesn't see why she should because she knows that her dad won't mind and she knows that her mom will hate anybody. So there's not much point in, you know, getting that official. But Lord Grantham says it is best not to pretend. Indeed. At the tea shop, McGee asks where Marigold is and if she can see her. Edith very bitchily says no. Yeah. I'm like, you know, McGee's been the only person who's been nice to you in this whole situation. Mm hmm. Edith says she was thinking about going to America. Rosamond says that's ridiculous. <laughs> and McGee is very annoyed by that. McGee, Edith was planning to invent a dead husband and go live in Detroit or Chicago, which, you know, yeah, shoot for the stars. <laughs> yeah. Aim high. Uh, but she doesn't want the magazine to be ruined, and she wants Marigold to be brought up English. Uh, so she might make Marigold, Marigold her orphaned godchild. Right. I, you know, I don't know. I'm like, haven't you been fantasizing about this for a while you'd think you'd really have your plan planned out better yeah i mean she was she had the foresight to you know make those birth certificates right anyway mcgee suggests bringing marigold home and edith doesn't want to be the county failure and like spoiler alert (laughs) you already are edith yeah you You failed to get married twice yeah once you get left at the altar by an old one-armed man (laughs) like people are pretty much like whoops yeah that's sort of it but McGee says that they should go back to the original Drew plan, and Rosamond thinks it's ridiculous. Uh, the original Drew plan being... That it would remain, you know, Marigold would still be the orphan of a friend of Drew's yes. that Edith just took a liking to and winds up adopting as her yes. own. Rosamond thinks it's a ridiculous plan. Edith says that Lord Grantham must never know. McGee says that he would come around eventually, but Edith says no. McGee's like, okay, this is like a stupid plan, but whatever. (laughs) Edith also says not to tell Mary because she doesn't want her queening it over her, like, more than usual. Right. She's not going to stop doing that. Right. But I think, oh, I think it would put a little extra spring in her queen for a while, so. Uh... McGee says, okay, whatever. Everyone that doesn't know already will get the pig farm story. Rosamond asks how they plan to execute this insanity. As opposed to all of Rosamond's plans, which have gone flawlessly. Yeah, they've been really good, especially her hat. (laughs) (laughs) Edith says people adopt babies all the time. I'm like, do they? It's not that common. (laughs) Anyway, uh, we're not trying to cast aspersions on adoption. We're just saying nobody else on this show has adopted anyone. Right. Just, you know, no one they know. (laughs) McGee says that she will call the Pigman, and then Rosamond asks about Mrs. Pigman, and Edith says to let Pigman handle her, because he's so good at that. And why are you being so mean about her? I know. All she has done is be like, why are you insane, insane rich person? Right. Which is a completely legitimate response to this entire thing. She has been attempting to protect your baby from what seemed to her like a crazy person trying to destroy that baby. Yeah. And uh, you know what? Guess what? Good news. You've succeeded. (laughs) Although I will say, now that she's decided to, like, 
definitively, yes, steal the baby. Mm-hmm. I feel way more charitable toward her. Oh, yeah, that's definitely... Like, the fact that she's made this choice, and, like, now the healing can begin. Right, And Agreed. I can maybe stop being so angry Agreed. at you. There can be... We can, we, can, we can at least ratchet down the amount of lying that's going on. Oh, yeah. Now, now, now they'll just be lying to strangers, which well, and everybody Lord Grantham. Ha- well, and Lord and Grantham. Look, if you're not lying to Lord Grantham, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. <laughs> McGee says that the pig man will come down to the station, take the baby, and then they will discuss the fake situation with the family, and then Edith will go to Pig Farm, pick up Marigold in broad daylight, and bring her back to Downton. Uh, the tea shop lady comes up and says, "Time to call it daylight, Daisy." <laughs> Because she is in a production of Oliver playing Bet. <laughs> That's why she has to go. Rehearsal starts in 10 minutes. It's a fine life. <laughs> Rosamond couldn't agree more. And I'm like, Rosamond, yeah, you what need is- to take a hit. Yeah. I don't even know what's going on Man, with Rosamond in this scene. you make Isabel look like a grade A meddler. <laughs> like, when Rosamond tries to meddle, everything gets fucked up. Yeah, that's true. Just like when she let Hildy paint her parlor black. <laughs> In the servants' hall, Anna says she's going with Mary to London. Something's come up, and she doesn't think she'll have time to look at the house while she's there. Mosley, me- why does she have to go to London with Mary to go to the frickin' kinema? She has to change Mary's rags. <laughs> <laughs> Mosley announces that he has received an invitation from Mister Mason for him and Daisy to come have lunch with him, and everybody is sure that they can get the time off. No problem there. <laughs> Thomas asks... This is for the next day, correct? Yeah. This is for tomorrow. As best I can tell. Oh, my... Like, even when I worked in retail, <laughs> you had to submit your, you know, <laughs> conflicts and stuff two weeks in advance. It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. We were planning on eating tomorrow, no, so... Madge can handle it. <laughs> right, Madge? She can't hear. She's busy, like, cleaning chimneys. <laughs> Thomas asks why Baxter doesn't go with them. He thinks she deserves a treat, and Molesley agrees. Not sure, you know, did she learn a new trick? (laughs) Daisy says that Mr. Mason won't mind, but wonders if Carson will let them go. Patmore says she can handle him. And Daisy wonders why Mason wrote to Molesley rather than her. Yeah, which is a completely legitimate thing to wonder. Right. Like, has Molesley ever even met Mr. Mason? Not that we're aware. And Patmore awkwardly says that she might have mentioned to Mr. Mason uh, that he that that Molesley had been helping Daisy during one of those many times when she has been writing to Mr. Mason, apparently. I just imagine a letter from Mrs. Patmore is just... <laughs> Yours sincerely. <laughs> What's her first name? Beryl. Oh my gosh. We already did we talk about this? Maybe not. I was talking about this with someone, and I forget who or why. Yeah. Wow. No, I know it was cousin Carly on Twitter. Mm. Because there's like um all of the the Twitter uh Downton roleplay people, which uh-huh. if you haven't looked at that, <laughs> you are robbing yourself of a lot of fun. <laughs> um I just no, I would make a documentary about these people. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you know, I I like I I'm fine with what they do. Mm-hmm. I think it's equally as valid as this that we are doing currently. Yeah, yeah. But like it's just it cracks like there are people who are like playing Sibby. And I'm like, why? <laughs> she can't do anything. Yeah. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we were on Twitter and like one of her, um, role play profiles has her listed as Beryl Patmore. And I forgot to look it up and see if it's actually canon, but that seems like totally legitimate to me. Yeah, it seems, seems like it. I also don't understand this aspect of the plan. If they're going to ask Mr. Mason to write a letter, why not be like, why not write a letter to Daisy and invite her? 
and tell her you've heard about this Mr. Mosley character. Maybe he can come along if you want him to come along right? for whatever reason. It's very bizarre. Yeah. Just, just strange. McGee, Edith, and Marigold are riding the rails. <laughs> they look for Pigman, uh, but instead they see Mary on the platform who is going to London. Right. Edith says to leave it to her because, again, we are just like letting all the people who can't <laughs> execute a plan make all the plans. Yeah. Uh, but she calls Pigman to help with McGee's suitcases and then tells him to stay on their carriage in the train and uh, take it to the next station and then come back. She'll pay for it. Mm-hmm. And Edith watches Marigold go and they all walk up to uh, Lady Mary. Yeah. And Edith says, she just wanted a day or two in London. And Mary says, I thought so all along. By the way, I don't care about any of this. Uh, Anyway. Sorry, were you gone? Yeah. Meanwhile, Anna saw the whole Marigold switcheroo go down. Yeah. Mary explains that she's going to London. And then McGee says not to forget about dinner with the Murdies because they need to protect Isabel from Larry. Mary doesn't think he'll try anything. McGee says have a lovely time in London. Uh, Mary's confident that she will. And then McGee says that was close. <laughs> she does. And I like how everybody's like, ah, this Larry fellow, you know, we've only met him once. and He was a real dick then. But I can't imagine that he'll be a dick this time. People never change. Yeah. The Dowager Isabel and Mertie are having lunch. The Dowager is not sure if she's met Mertie's younger son, and then they talk about Larry. Uh, and Mertie says Larry was very fond of Sybil. And Isabel says that they should just not mention the previous meeting, which is, you know, standard British custom. Mertie says that he's lucky to have Isabel, and he can't wait to see her again, and then Spratt sees Mertie out. Isabel says that Spratt is still down in the mouth, and the Dowager's like, yeah, Dankergate's still going on. <laughs> Isabel thanks the Dowager for being generous regarding Murdy, and the Dowager says that it's too late to stop it. Which is very uh, rude. Not generous. No. Isabel asks after a Karagan. The Dowager hasn't heard anything new, and the Isabel asks if she will receive the princess when the princess arrives. And the Dowager says she's still got plenty of time to plan how she will handle that. And then Spratt suddenly bursts in and announces that he is resigning. He has suffered all he can and can take no more. He leaves. The Dowager says, typical Sprat. Yeah, don't let the Sprat hit you on the way out. (laughs) He says that if he'd really meant it, he would have given his notice quietly so as to get a good reference. Uh, But this is just him being a drama queen. Isabel asks if she will forgive Sprat, and the Dowager says anything rather than find a new butler. Yeah, except maybe you could find one that gets along with your maid, since you already had to get a new maid. But, I don't know. you know, still, I'm, I'm sure it's an annoying process. At any rate, that brings us to the first of our two recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, in which Tom will repeat some history. <laughs> uh, so take it away, our Cantonese connoisseur. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> We got to that. I hope everyone else enjoys that. Well. <laughs> as much as we do. We, we ain't stopping. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. If you all hate it, let us know, because this is a little bit of extra work every <laughs> No, I just meant the intro. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You mean the intro. Yeah. I meant mainly how I just say your name 17 times. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So for uh, my segment this week, I had a bit of trouble. Uh, I was going to try and figure out something about, like, 
journalism or like in particular women publishers i mean because edith isn't just the editor now she's the publisher uh and i'll tell you doing google searches for women women publishers it's like crickets yeah like there's like nothing that i can find in the in, time period or just in general just in general wow. i mean Catherine graham published the washington post for a while so that's obviously a very high profile one uh but there's not much beyond that and it's you know you keep finding all these things of publishers of women's magazines and things like that um so i'm sure there's some out there that i just wasn't able to track down but i wasn't able to track it down so uh i decided to take a look uh and this was actually a suggestion from a cousin i believe yeah this was from cousin mrs grant yeah uh that i take a look at hong kong in the 1920s where the princess currently is and get a sense of what that was like um so i mean what i can tell you is i doubt the princess liked it yeah it was for one thing it was a real hotbed of various kinds of radical politics of the sorts that she was fleeing. Um, because it was this British territory, it was very convenient for radicals who, you know, if things got too hot on one side of the border, could kind of slip over, uh, you know, depending on, you know, the politics governing, you know, who was in charge in that area of China. Sometimes they were cool and sometimes they weren't. Because this was this whole time period and it was basically the 50 years that they went from the end of having an emperor to a finally eventually having communism. Or things are just really complicated. Uh, there was the, the Kuomintang, which was Chiang Kai-shek's uh, sort of nationalist movement. And that was at this point still allied with the communists. And that, that was always shifting back and forth how much they were allied with the communists and how much they were rivals. Uh, but at this time, they were pretty well allied. So the communists uh, were pretty safe in this area because this was a Kuomintang-like stronghold. Though there were still warlords up in the north running things, and the communists would not have been welcomed there. But they were down in Canton and, and, and Hong Kong. Uh, so they had a lot of labor strife. Um, during this time period, they had a strike in 1920 and then another one in 1922 of the, uh, of all the, the, uh, seamen and dock workers, which that being an island nation that had essentially no natural resources, it's incredibly rich because that's where all the taxes were levied on trade, but they didn't have anything on the island. So when the shipping shut down, it was like a serious problem. And so they, they won the strike. Uh, but both those two strikes are basically just sort of standard, we want more pay and better conditions strikes because the, the population of the uh, Hong Kong was growing drastically. It went from 500,000 at the end of World War One to 1. 1.5 million at the start of World War Two, which among other things led to inflation. Things kept getting more expensive and that's why I had these strikes. Uh, but in 1925, there was a much more serious strike that was a general strike against British imperialism in general. And this was, you know, this is on that borderline between strike and like revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really weirdly hard to find much about this strike on the Internet. Like the Wikipedia article is very bare bone bones. Was it odd. a stub? It wasn't could quite. Could you add as, to it? I mean, <laughs> I imagine I could have if I knew anything to add. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, and what's particularly unclear is it seems to have been very, you know, thorough and effective. I mean, in Hong Kong, like, Britain had to loan them, like, $3 billion during it just to keep them afloat. But I can't figure out what – I guess it just sort of faded out at some point. It's not clear why it stopped happening because it, it did, but I can't, I can't find out why. So that's just a little odd. 
Um, yeah. Oh, and all that money they were getting on taxes, a, a big chunk of that, still around 15% at this time, uh, still opium, duties on opium. Fantastic. Yeah, so great. The one really interesting thing that I liked and will try to remember to, to put up the link to this uh, was a sort of a reminiscence, a memoir by Barbara Anslow, who moved from Scotland to Hong Kong at the age of eight at some point in the 20s. Uh, she did not like it at all. It, you know, she hated the climate and the bugs and everything else like that. And it's, it's really interesting and in just getting a sense of, so for like, she describes two games that they would play, one of which was basically rock, paper, scissors, which she explains in great detail that nobody would have heard of this. And then another one that I had never heard of that she barely describes because it's like, oh, everybody knows this game. And it was just, so that's just kind of funny and, and you know, just this historical point of view. Uh, my favorite thing about it was a poem that she wrote uh, shortly after arriving in Hong Kong. <clears throat> it goes like this. Where the sun is hot and the earth is dry and babies wander about like a fly is my dwelling place for quite a few years. If I stay much longer, I shall be in tears. It's the dirtiest place I've ever seen. There's no grass like a lovely green. I'd rather be back in my home in the north and go for a sail on the river forth. That's a, a very bleak but technically accomplished poem for an eight-year-old. Agreed. And so I, I would also add, Branson, you better make sure Sibby doesn't end up writing a poem like this at yeah, some point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. She'll but, have uh, to figure out something that rhymes with the River Charles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was the main stuff. And, and there is actually, like, there's a fair amount of information out there, but, like, it's, like, super detailed. Like, you can get really, like, specific, you know about their trade and things like that. And you can find all sorts of detailed information about the negotiations that went on in the first two strikes and all this sort of thing. But in, in terms of summer, that's basically what it was. Uh, you know, fast-growing, radicalized Chinese nationalist slash communist city, uh, which was very dirty and unlike Scotland. So <laughs> unappealing to Princess Corrigan is my verdict. She will probably be glad to leave. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Back to the recap. Yes. Blake and Mary are watching the kinema <laughs> when Blake signals that they should leave. And Mary's like, but the kinema's not over. <laughs> In the lobby, Mary asks why they left. Blake says to just do what he says and then says to kiss him. Uh, he kisses her just as Gilly and Mabel Lane Fox walk out. Whoa. Gilly says if she just told him it was like that, he would have let her go. Which I don't believe. Well, yeah. Anyway, she says well, she... Well, yeah, he, you know, he needed to see it. Yeah. She says that she did tell him, but anyway, he can go ahead and go now. <laughs> uh, Mabel Lane Fox asks if they can go, because I've had enough sentiment from John Barrymore. <laughs> Blake is glad it's all resolved. Don't you mean kentiment? <laughs> <laughs> Blake is glad it's all resolved. Mary says that Gilly said they didn't have to do that, uh, but they did. Which Wait. is true. She, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Blake says Gilly will be happy with Mabel Lane Fox. Mary's glad. A little sad, but glad. This is the dumbest scene. Like, this is such a completely unsatisfying resolution to it, all of this. It is. I mean... It landed it, with a real wah-wah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the right outcome, but it just... No, I was just like, why couldn't we do a standard fellows... Oh, remember that time Mary kissed Blake in front of Gilly? <laughs> Mary asks if they should go have some dinner. Blake agrees. Mary asks when he's off to Poland, and he says he catches the boat train on Monday, and he will be gone for several months or a year, and he thinks Mary will be married by then. 
which I don't think. Like, come on. Yeah. Are we or are we not being set up for a Blake Endgame here? I I mean, it I think seems... it's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, so I think Mary will not be married by then. Yeah, but who knows? You never know when another aristocratic pirate is going to move <laughs> into view over the horizon. Well, he was not the pirate. Gilly was the pirate. Well, right, but now that you know, now Gilly is gone. Maybe there's a replacement. Gone, Are- Gilly. <laughs> <laughs> I would read that book. <laughs> yeah. Which brings us, rather suddenly, to our next recurring segment with our very own kinema correspondent, Kelly, in Fashion Backwards. Hello, Tom. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I've been here all along. Uh, yeah, so what we are going to talk about today is John Barrymore, uh, who is fascinating. Yeah. I was not expecting to be this fascinated, but what a crazy life this man had. <laughs> so he was born, John Sidney Blythe, either on February 14th or 15th, which oh, is today. Nice. Uh, Happy birthday, dude. Yeah, in 1882. And he was born in Philadelphia. And he was the son of uh, Maurice Barrymore and Georgiana Drew. I'm not sure why his last name was Blythe. I think Barrymore was a stage name. Okay. Um, but basically, his parents were both part of like these big theatrical families. Mm-hmm. And John Barrymore decided he wanted to be an artist. Uh, but he sucked at art. <laughs> and so he wound up just going into the family business, mm-hmm. uh, which was beyond stage. And his siblings were Lionel and Ethel Barrymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were kind of like the first generation of like these big, big stars in America. Yeah. And they did some work on both sides of the Atlantic, um, but they were based primarily in America. Mm-hmm. So he had a really bizarre life. He basically started drinking when he was 14 years old. Wow. Uh, and later died of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, so, so, yeah, keep all that in mind, everybody. Yeah. Um, and, like, he had this, like, golden period where he was, like, the, you know, greatest living tragedian. And then suddenly just started drinking even more heavily than he had before. Mm-hmm. And he kind of became this very, like, bloated parody of himself. Mm. Um but before all that happened, his mother died uh, when he was 11, oh. uh, which is unfortunate. So yeah. he was mostly raised by his grandmother. And he uh, uh, lost his virginity at the age of 15 to his stepmother. Uh, oh. Yeah. Gross. That's not supposed also, to Also, the Wikipedia article listed as <laughs> having been seduced by his stepmother and I really feel like that's irresponsible. I'm like, yeah. you can't call statutory rape a seduction. Yeah. That's just inaccurate. Yeah. So he had a rough year that year uh, <laughs> because his grandmother died. Oh. So he had no more, like, strong female role models in his life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he was moving around a lot because of uh, his family's theatrical Sure. Jobs, right, basically. Right. Um, ooh, the weirdest thing, actually, when he was really young, his parents were touring with this Polish actress, uh, and her name was Helena Modieska, and she made them baptize all of their children Catholic, which I think is Wait. so weird. <laughs> like, baptize your kids however you want. Right. But, like, shouldn't that be your choice <laughs> as parents? Like, your random employer. <laughs> like, it's not the Middle Ages anymore. You don't have to, like, swear fealty. <laughs> right. And, and it was, a, like, like, they were on tour for a season. Yeah. Like, they were not, this was not, like, a lifelong partnership <laughs> that they had. No, I, I so, uh, Maria was her name? 
or whatever. Uh, she just she just called them, you know. Helena. Oh, Helena. Yeah. Okay. She was like, "Oh yeah, I heard you had the baby. I went ahead and scheduled the baptism." <laughs> and they're like, "Uh, what?" And she's like, "Did you not read the contract? <laughs> Put it right in there." Bizarre. Uh, so. John Barrymore was a very badly behaved child. He was constantly getting into trouble. Uh, he was getting expelled from schools a lot. And <laughs> well, that may be the drinking. Well, yeah, which uh, didn't really start in earnest until later. Okay. A bit later. Like, Fair enough. But anyway, in 1895, he entered Georgetown Preparatory School, and uh, that was located on the Georgetown University campus. Okay. And he was expelled two years later, probably after being caught waiting in a brothel. No. Uh, the the evidence is not clear <laughs> as to what exactly he did. They're like, uh, listen, if you're not willing to if you're not willing to bribe the attendant to go show and write in, right? Like, then clearly you're not smart enough to be at the school. At any rate, uh, there's an alternate theory that he was expelled after the staff at school saw him being drunk, oh. uh, which is also extremely plausible. <laughs> They may, they, maybe they saw him being drunk at a brothel. So anyway, 1897 was the year that he was 15 and lost his virginity yeah. and his grandmother died. Uh, so then he went over to England with his dad and he went to school uh, at a fine arts school, but basically just like left and, uh, quote, devoted much of his subsequent stay in London to bohemianism and nocturnal adventures, <laughs> according to his biographer, Margot Peters. Was he Spider-Man? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Well, Spider-Man's not very bohemian. No, that's true. You know, that's more of a Venom thing, I think. <laughs> um, so in 1900, he came back to New York and he started working uh, as an illustrator on the New York Evening Journal. And he basically did not ever want to be an actor. He mm-hmm. didn't give two shits about being an actor. He wanted to be an artist. Yeah. Um, but he started uh, performing in some shows at the behest of his father and his sister Ethel. And uh, he was just this really like interesting personality. Like He had a very big personality. And the weirdest thing is like even just reading his Wikipedia entry, you're like, this guy was like crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a way that's kind of good, but also clearly very bad for him. Right, right. Um, he, I don't think, had a very good role model in his father, who in 1901 uh, had a mental breakdown as a result of tertiary syphilis, Oh, uh, which was a thing that happened. Yeah, sure. So uh, his father was institutionalized and went completely nuts and uh, then died not too long after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same year that, her, that his father had this breakdown, he had an affair with Evelyn Nesbitt, who fans of the book slash movie slash musical Ragtime will remember as the inspiration of the crime of the century. Uh, when her husband, uh, Harry K. Thaw, shot her lover, Stanford White, uh, over her boning him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, Barrymore said she was the most maddening woman. Uh, that does, by all accounts, seem to be the case. She mm. was very uh, high maintenance, I think <laughs> is the word. Yeah. Um, he actually tried to marry her, but her mother, Nesbitt's mother, didn't think much of him, uh, alcoholic cartoonist that he was. <laughs> and so, uh, to break up their relationship, she sent her to school in New Jersey, which I guess is where you send people when you want them to not marry a Barrymore. Well, it's, I mean, it's just, that was her time out. Yeah. Anyway, uh. Go in sit in New Jersey and think about what you've done. <laughs> oh. Incidentally, uh. Barrymore thought he was going to have to testify 
at Saw's uh, murder trial mm-hmm. after he shot and killed Stanford White. Uh, he was going to be like a character witness mm-hmm. and would have to d- talk about whether or not he had arranged for Nesbitt to have a quote-unquote appendectomy, <laughs> which was an abortion, uh, even though like she'd already like done that already twice. But mm. like, you know, yeah. he never got called and it was fine because Thaw uh, wound up pleading guilty by reason of insanity. Not well, guilty not, by right. reason of insanity. Yeah. Does anybody plead guilty by reason of insanity? <laughs> You'd have to be insane to plead guilty. So, backing up slightly, in 1902, <laughs> I just love the tone of this Wikipedia article so much, yeah. I'm going to quote from it extensively. All right. In May 1902, Barrymore was fired from his newspaper position after producing a poor illustration for the paper while hungover. <laughs> And I just, I like the idea that it was this, just this one. Yeah, no, I know. Like, like this had not been an ongoing problem. It was just like they all suddenly realized he was hungover all the time. Um, I was like, so in this story about this military battle, you provided us an illustration. This seems to be a stick figure holding what appears to be a gun. <laughs> uh, yeah, best I got. <laughs> so his sister Ethel was basically paying for everybody's life at this point. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, he was a loser. I think Lionel was okay. They had both just gone into acting because they were like, we don't care. Right. Like, this is what you do. Well, Lionel Barrymore owns that bank. I know. <laughs> uh, while discussing his future with his brother, Barrymore said, it looks as though I'll have to succumb to the family curse, acting. And he later admitted that there isn't any romance about how I went on stage. I needed the money. Yeah. Uh, so he starts acting uh, in like 1903. And uh, he is kind of fast-tracked into being a, a stage actor. Sure, sure. Uh, it helps when your family is around all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the problem with him is that he continued to drink. And he would miss performances and just be wasted on stage. And yeah. was not a good employee. But people just kept hiring him. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in part, that's because his mother's family owned... Uh, like a, <laughs> like a bunch of theaters, right? So yeah, they kind of had to that like, always helps. put up with him. Yeah, yeah, um, career tip. So he well, he goes on tour for a while and and uh, he's doing very well. And then he meets his first wife in 1910, a socialite named Catherine Corey Harris, and they got married of a uh, very quickly. And Harris's father refused to come to the wedding because mm. he objected so strongly to the relationship. And uh, they went on tour then with a play called The Dictator, and Harris was given a small role in the play, which is the thing that keeps happening. Like, he would keep marrying these women who weren't actresses, and then they would, like, get cast in stuff. Wow. Very bizarre. Anyway, uh, very quickly, Barrymore, quote-unquote, began to think of his marriage as a bus accident, <laughs> uh, which is not a good thing. No, that is not... You're not going to see that in any candy hearts. No. Within a week of the wedding, his wife complained that she was never seeing him and he started to drink more yeah great uh and then he started appearing in short films in 1912 and uh they were uh recorded for a philadelphia based company at that point hollywood Mm. was still kind of not happening yet Uh um although he did later go there that year as it was sort of like starting to happen Uh that was the dumbest thing i've ever said on this podcast (laughs) well you know um so it's in the year 1913, he really starts appearing in a lot more movies. Mm-hmm. 
he attempted to fight in World War One, uh, but it was discovered that he had varicose veins and was not allowed to fight as a result. Wow. Which is a very weird reason to not be able to fight in a war. But yeah. whatever. I don't know what effect varicose veins have on things. Yeah. Well, it might make you more susceptible to, like, trench foot and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so about six years into his marriage to Catherine, uh, they started living apart and Mm -hmm. she sued for divorce in November of 1916. And at this time he started sleeping with a married mother of two, Blanche Ulrichs, a suffragist, uh, who, according to one of his biographers had anarchistic (laughs) self-confidence. This lady actually sounds fascinating. Yeah. I want to read about her life. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she also published poetry under the name Michael Strange Hmm. and, you know, was married to this other guy and it their relationship was a secret, but then, uh, Ulrich's husband was commissioned into the army and sent to France and they were just like, fuck it. (laughs) We're together now. Yeah. So anyway, that went on for a while, and it's during this period of time that uh, he starts making some of his best-known works, Sherlock Holmes, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, mm. uh, and then he did his first Shakespeare, which oh. I thought was odd, because he's known as, as being this great tragedian. Right, right. And so he played Richard III uh, in 1920, okay. and he trained with a vocal coach and really, like, beef this up and i mean everybody lost their minds over it yeah. basically yeah um <clears throat> uh then in the summer of 1920 ulrichs became pregnant with uh his baby mm-hmm. and so she got a quick divorce from her husband who apparently did not care <laughs> so that was interesting um so they got married and then they had a daughter diana barrymore mm-hmm. and then uh she adapted uh, Ulrichs did uh, a play called Claire de Lune, which was adapted from Victor Hugo's novel, The Man Who Laughs, which I've never heard of. Likewise. Uh, and then Ethel Barrymore was in it, but like the play was, t- was terrible and nobody <laughs> liked it. I'm like, what dude, like you can't keep working with your wife. <laughs> like it's not good for anybody. No, nobody likes it. Yeah. So then, uh, he decided to perform as Hamlet. And basically, he, you know, wanted Hamlet to be like a man's man. It was like a football Hamlet, mm. essentially. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, but it was extremely popular. Was like, like, like Tim Allen playing Hamlet. It was kind of like that, actually. <laughs> um, but Orson Welles said late, much later in life that, uh, that was the best Hamlet he had seen. Mm. And, uh, like, I think John Gilgood saw him and, like, mm. Gilgood later didn't like him as much, but I think, like, was very much inspired by him at this point. Uh huh, uh huh. Um, in 1924, I believe this is the film. Okay. From this episode of Downton Abbey. It's called Bo Brummel. Mm. Uh, and at that point, uh, <laughs> Barrymore decided to have an affair with his 17 year old co-star because well, that's, that's, that's why what not? You do. Yeah. yeah. So he was, you know, hooking up with her for a while and he tried to arrange for her to perform opposite him, uh, in Moby Dick. Mm. Uh, cause he played Captain Ahab. Sure. Your fave. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted Mary Astor to play the female lead, but she couldn't do it. What was the female lead? I don't know. There's the literally whale? no women in Moby Dick. I don't know. Um, oh, it was loosely based. Ah, uh, well, okay. Anyway, um, she couldn't perform in that, and so they cast this woman named Dolores Costello, and she then became his third wife. <laughs> 
Uh, is like, listen, I'm going to fuck the next, you know, who's ever the co-lead in this movie. Yeah. I hope it's my current lady, but, you know. Yeah, if not. That's, it's up to the gods. I can't yeah. help it. So, um, eventually he divorced from Ulrich's and that was not difficult. Like they'd kind mm. of been, they'd been legally separated for a while mm-hmm. and she had been living in Paris and she later went on to marry some other dude. Mm-hmm. Um, again, her life sounds really dope. Like she just <laughs> was just like, whatever. I don't care. Let me vote. Yeah. Um, and then um, Barrymore and Costello had a daughter named Dolores and a son, John Drew Barrymore. John Drew Barrymore being Drew Barrymore's... No. N- no. No, because I think... No. Drew's descended from Lionel, I thought. No. No? Uh-uh. Oh, okay. Um, no, it is. Okay. Yeah, that is Drew Barrymore's dad. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, really... Like, this family is fucked up, you guys. Because <laughs> yeah. all through this, he's still drinking insane amounts of alcohol yeah he's like an extremely high functioning alcoholic uh and he did actually successfully make the transition to talkies Mm, mm -hmm. which as we've discussed was very difficult right but because he had worked with this vocal coach and he had all this theatrical training he didn't sound terrible (laughs) on film which is great yeah um and then like he was working with like mgm and and warner and all this stuff uh but then like he just started drinking so much and like basically he like he low hand himself. Yeah. Like he yeah. was like working himself so hard. He, uh, he more himself. He did bury himself. <laughs> he was working so much and he was drinking so much and he had a complete breakdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent him to rehab, but um, there really wasn't at that point. A lot of the damage was done. Like even yeah. in rehab, he was still drinking. <laughs> Like he said, no, no, no. He did say no, no, no. <laughs> um, then, okay, this might be the weirdest thing. Okay. So at this point, his career is in decline. He's kind of split up with, with his current wife. Mm-hmm. And then a 19 year old fan of his named Elaine Jacobs visited him and they became friends. Then when he got out of the hospital from his latest breakdown, mm-hmm. uh, her mother invited him to just convalesce. At their house, she then changed the the nineteen year old changed her name to Elaine Barry, and she did that to get as near to Barrymore as she did. Like they weren't even in a relationship <laughs> at that point. She just wanted to have a similar name, right? So then they did get together, and then uh, they wound up being married eventually. They were like this huge tabloid couple. Yeah. Uh, and the press called them Caliban and Ariel, which I think is really bizarre. That is a little bizarre, yeah. Um, well, they hadn't invented portmanteaus yet. Exactly. That's yeah. true. Well, plus she would have, like, she kind of spoiled that when yeah. changing her name to Barry. What do they call him? Barry Squared? <laughs> so... I also like the idea that she was just like, you know, if I change my last name and get him drunk, I can convince him that we're already married. That's essentially what happened because Barry, like they were, they were gonna get together, and then Barrymore was like, you know what, I don't actually want to do this anymore. And then uh, a newspaper editor chartered a plane for Elaine Barry and flew her to Chicago to meet the train that John Barrymore was on for her to like be like, please, like be with me. Oh my god! And yeah, it is really awkward. Yeah, yeah, and basically, uh. He spent the final years of his life kind of playing washed up has been Shakespearean mm-hmm. uh, actors. 
he did uh, perform in the 1936 Romeo and Juliet, and Basil Rathbone played Tybalt to his Mercutio, and basically said, yeah, he was just like a disaster on the set. Like, he mm-hmm. just was not all there, and he started um, being completely unable to remember his lines. Yeah. And even, like, his characters' names, like, that's how yeah. much his drinking had affected him. Yeah. Um, and basically, he just kept trying to work. He did some radio Shakespeare for NBC, and he did some screwball comedies. Like, he just kept working mm-hmm. uh, up through the end of his life. But then in uh, May of 1942, he collapsed while working on this uh, NBC radio Shakespeare thing, mm-hmm. uh, and he died of cirrhosis and kidney failure, and he also had pneumonia. Wow. Uh, but good news, he had uh, returned to the faith of the Catholic Church shortly before his death, so presumably it all worked out okay. Oh, yeah. Well, then he's, yeah. Then he's covered. Yeah, and uh, just... And I looked into sort of the other Barrymores, and Lionel and Ethel did not seem to have the predisposition to alcoholism Mm -hmm. that John Barrymore did. Uh, But you do see that running through John Drew and then down like to Drew Barrymore. And just uh, most of John Drew Barrymore's kids uh, had a terrible, terrible like problems with addiction. And his and and John Barrymore's own children, because he had several Mm -hmm. that I didn't mention. Sure. I forget who belonged to who. Yeah. Honestly. Um, yeah. So that's John Barrymore. Yeah. He's got another, uh, let's see, 1924 to 1942. I mean, he's, he's kind of peaking right now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I guess uh, that's, that's a lot of sentiment from John Barrymore, I guess. A lot. Yeah. No. And I think it's interesting too, that as we get more into this age of kind of, you know, mass media, mm-hmm. how much more of my segments wind up being about, yeah. film mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. are just known in a way like we have much more information about these people than we did even you know when we were talking about rudolph valentino right even though like, his life has been really I mean, well documented you know let alone the cheerful charlies or whatnot oh yeah <laughs> yeah so that's the kinema all right well thank you you're welcome <laughs> next we see mr mason hooray yay he offers Daisy a seat at the table where Baxter and Mosley have already sat down. Baxter says that Daisy is lucky to have this beautiful place to come to. And man, it really is pretty. And No, I'm like, Daisy, why don't you just leave that shithole and come live here on this beautiful farm with this nice man yeah. who is always very nice to you? You work in a cave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Mason says that Daisy's always welcome and she says she knows that she doesn't come enough. But Mason says that it's all right. He knows that she is busy with her books. Mosley then quite leadingly asks whether Mason thinks that Daisy is right to give up her studies. He does not. Daisy is like, oh, but don't you want to see more of me? Mason says, of course, but knowledge is power. And Mosley agrees. Can you not also study at that beautiful fucking farm? I would think so. Carry your books. Mosley says that there are millions of people who could have done so much with an education. And he, and he, Mosley, is one of them. Baxter says that Mosley is still, like, fine or whatever. Like, so, No, yeah. he's not. <laughs> right. Moving on. And Daisy says, what's the point with the man keeping them down? Also a solid point. Yeah. Mason says that there's a labor government in power. Daisy says that they won't last the year. But Mason says, well, next time it'll be longer. So old-timey people did know stuff. Yeah, looks that way. Mason agrees that... I mean, it's more about an old person knowing stuff. You know, he's been through enough governments in his time that, you know, they come around. So, yes, Mason agrees that she should stick with her studies and they should get to their bus to get back home. Like, they're really not worried about him back at Downton. Nope. Stay for days. (laughs) 
Madge is doing fine. <laughs> Baxter offers to help with the dishes, but Mason says that he and Daisy are their hosts. So no need. As they leave, Baxter tells Mosley she's glad when good things come from bad, like how dumb William led to awesome Mr. Mason. <laughs> Mosley asks about telling Bates about the thieving, and she says he has troubles enough. And I'm like, you know who has troubles enough? Us. Stop talking. <laughs> Mason and Daisy catch up, and they all get on the cart, and they discuss Larry, who is coming for dinner. And uh, Mason laughs and laughs about how he thought that working at the big house must be so dull. And I'm like, no, dude. It's very it's, it's exciting. Not, there's it, an entire weekly television show about it. Yeah. There's no, you know. Is, do we know the, Do we know the name of his farm? I think it came no, up once, I but don't, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Alternate, alternate Edith storyline. Okay. Edith gives the baby to Daisy, who takes it to the farm, lives on the farm, raises the baby, which is far enough away that, like, nobody's going to notice. Mm-hmm. Edith is, like, going around, like, you know, publishing her newspaper or whatever. People sure. don't know where she's at. She's got important meetings at farms. Uh-huh. Yeah. She could really expand their agricultural coverage. Mm-hmm. Meantime, Marigold could continue learning the ways of pigs. Mm-hmm. while back in this reality Uh, in the library mary's just been told about this whole pig farm scheme and asked if they really want edith to keep this baby edith says that they do and tells branson that there are no prior claims on this baby they've checked at the baby registry lord grantham walks in carrying isis (gasps) yeah McGee asks if Isis really is pregnant because she doesn't see how. And Lord Grantham says, no, it's cancer. And the doctor says it's not going to be long. Oh, baby yeah. Isis. Yeah. How? Yeah, it's very sad. McGee says, oh, how I hate that word. Lord Grantham says that the vet offered to put her down right there, but he couldn't quite let him. Mary says how sorry she is. And Lord Grantham says that Isis probably doesn't even know who he is, apart from the hand that feeds her. That's not true, ma'am. And we don't even like you. I know. Isis knows everybody. Yeah. Uh, McGee comes over as uh, Lord Grantham has set down Isis, and she says that this is Isis's spot, which it is. Uh, Lord Grantham wishes they could put the dinner off, but McGee says that the Murdy boys have already come up from London, and he agrees that they, they can't put it off. Rose suggests that they say Lord Grantham is ill, and Branson says that he doesn't have to be at dinner, but Mary says that he does. Nanny comes in with the babies. McGee says that she had asked Nanny to bring them down early. Uh, Edith sees all these happy parents, well, a happy parent and Mary, uh, and asks what they should do about pig plan. Yeah, way to like completely <laughs> derail this important conversation, everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's understandable. Lord Grantham asks what's up. And when it's all explained to him, he says it doesn't make much sense. Mary agrees and asks if Edith wants, you know, what if she wants to start her own family. But Why Edith- do they keep saying that? <laughs> She's tried and tried and it's just never going to work out. Yeah. Like, let like, her live her life. If she wants life. to start her own family, this is her only chance. Yeah. Pig baby. Also, I don't see that starting a family made any other Crawley sister particularly happy. <laughs> it made one of them dead. <laughs> right. And it made the other one somehow more dead inside than she was before. It's true. Anyway, Edith says that she couldn't bear it if Marigold was to be in an orphanage. Mary suggests, well, then why not just give Pig Farm some money so that they can continue to take care of this baby? But McGee says that it's, it's not just the money, that Mrs. Pigman just finds it too much. 
Rose thinks that's a bit feeble. <laughs> and Branson says, is it looking at these two? Which doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. I'm like, did you hear what she said? She meant Mrs. Pigman is feeble. Right. And or, I guess maybe he's like, oh, what? Like, these are a handful. and Like, are they? We have an army of nannies? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to say. Anyway, Edith asks if she should take the baby, and nobody can really find a, no, a reason to say no. So she's going to get to keep the baby. And then Sibby comes over and pets Isis. I know. In Mrs. Hughes' parlor, Anna comes in and Mrs. Hughes explains her plan with Carson to buy a place. Anna says that Mr. Bates has the same plan. And Mrs. Hughes says, we're all thinking of a different future. Anna tells Mrs. Hughes how she saw the pig man get on the train and there was a baby. Uh, Mrs. Hughes tells Anna not to get involved. Yeah. Because, oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Right. Let's all start following that philosophy. Yeah, everybody stop meddling. Just be like, oh, there's something I don't quite understand. I wonder if it's any of my business. Probably not. Yeah. At dinner, Lord Grantham tells Isabel about Pig Plan, and she thinks it sounds great. It'll let Edith meddle in the comfort of her own home. <laughs> uh, so some junior Murdy thinks that it sounds like rather an uncomfortable piece of baggage. Uh, and Isabel suggests it might be a problem for Edith's marriage prospects, and he agrees. The Dowager asks Rose if she has written to her mother about this clearly pending marriage and asks if her mother will approve. Rose says not to be disappointing, but she does know that religious differences are a big thing. Uh, and then Murdy number two. Thing which, two. Yeah, thing two. Uh, chimes in to agree, says that it will be tough to bring up children and that this is why most marriages fail. Mary says that sometimes people just don't get along, but thing one chimes in and decides to turn the conversation to Isabel says that he sees that there is a wide disparity in class and background that may prove their marriage's ruin. Uh, at the dinner, Where, specifically designed to celebrate their engagement. Yes. He talks shit about the fact that a middle-class woman is taking over his mother's place as one of the leaders of the county, and that her inevitable failure will ruin their marriage. I would also like to point out thing one nobody gives a shit about the county anymore right people have not given a shit about the county for years yeah like she does not even have to do anything agreed you monster (laughs) lord grantham is getting pissed says that do you realize that isabel's son is my heir or was my heir and thing one says well everybody has distant cousins who are odd these guys are assholes. Yeah. Unbelievable assholes. Yeah. And Murdy says, how dare you? And asks him to leave. He says he had to make excuses for his rudeness last time, and it is tiring to think he'll have to do it again, which was very well said. Uh, but thing one mocks their choice of in-laws, saying a chauffeur and soon a Jew, but even so. And Branson just snaps and says, why don't you just get out, you bastard? It's amazing. Yeah. The Dowager says that they have slipped into a foreign tongue. And Lord Grantham says that he doesn't endorse Branson's language, but that they all think that Thing 1 and Thing 2 should go, mm-hmm. as they do, like dicks. Thing 2 says, what did you imagine, that we would welcome you with open arms? Why are you being like this? Oh my god. They are just some old people. Listen, these they look, they make the homely liberal look like Emily Post. That's true. Or whatever, like... Well, and I'm- my other question like the homely is, liberal picked some fights, but they weren't personal. 
Like, there's not an issue of inheritance here, right? I don't know. I can't see that there is. I mean, no. I think, like, you know, she would have an income stipulated for her in his will. I would imagine, If he dies yeah. first. But nonetheless, I, it's, it really doesn't seem to be about that. It's just this, like, they feel it diminishes their social standing, which is just bizarre. Again, nobody I, cares about this anymore. Yeah. and The Cindermies are just buying up the county left and right anyway. Right. And I mean, even if you're going to be, you know, dicks about it, just let them get married and then be dicks behind their back and, and you'll imply that your father's gone kind of crazy. You yeah. Know? But it'd be like, oh, ho, 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 ho. We're all rich and drunk. Well, downstairs, the servants all gather around to hear the story of Branson saying, bastard. They're all very excited. Anna feels sorry for McGee. I don't know why. Yeah. Because uh, I would her, just, I just, her party didn't go I well. I guess it's because, yeah, just that she was the hostess. Carson comes in and says that everybody's leaving, and he hopes that Molesley wasn't downstairs gossiping. Right. Which, why else would you come downstairs? Yeah, and he definitely was. Yeah. Like, you can't stop gossip. No. Not what is good. Uh, uh, Atticus and Rose are talking about the unpleasantness, but then Atticus pulls Rose into, like, a little side hall. He says that they're going to be remembering this evening, so they should give themselves a good reason to remember it as well as a bad one. He says that they already have to defend themselves, so they should go ahead and have a reason to defend themselves. Rose says that she's not going to answer until he says it properly. (laughs) He asks if he has to get down on one knee, and she says, of course he does. But you won't have to stay there long. (laughs) Yes. So he does, and he pops the question, and she says he can get up. She says the truth is... uh, they haven't known each other, and there will be problems, but they both know that they... Be- Atticus says they both know that they belong together, and Rose obviously agrees, so he says he'll call tomorrow, and they'll decide how they're going to tell everyone, and then they kiss, and Atticus heads off. Woo! Yeah. We Very all say exciting. hooray. The Dowager walks out with Isabel and Murdy and says for Murdy and Isabel to take their time, and Murdy says that they'll laugh about this someday, and the Dowager Countess says she hopes so. Murdy asks if Isabel will change her mind. She says she can't talk about it, and, uh, wait, does she what? Yeah, she says that, yeah, Murdy asks Isabel if this whole thing is going to change her mind about the marriage, and she's like, I can't talk about that right now, and and anyway, Rose is going to be taking up the attention for weddings. And then Thing 2 comes in to nag Murdy, and he's like, Larry's been in the car! (laughs) Like, why are you still there? Tell him to crack a window. Calm down. Uh, and then he goes back outside. Isabel says not to blame him. He misses his mother, which I don't think this is even really about that. I agree. Murdy says that his boys take after their mother in every possible way. Yep. Uh, their mother who he didn't like. Yep. Uh, he leaves and then Rose <laughs> skip by in direct contrast to what has just happened. Yeah. McGee is in bed and El- and Lord Grantham stands holding Isis and he says that he will sleep in his dressing room to be with Isis. McGee says to stay there, uh, you know, with her. Lord Grantham says he doesn't think that Isis will last until morning. And McGee says, then lay her down here between us. She'll know that she has somebody that loves her. Lord Grantham says two people that love her and each other. And McGee says she only hopes she can say as much when her time comes. It's very upsetting, guys. It's very upsetting. We're very upset. We are. Because it doesn't seem... Yeah. I guess this is goodbye, old friend. Yeah. I'm going to miss that dog. I know, me too. She was the best dog. She was. She was a great dog. This is ridiculous. Yes, it is. But we love that dog. We did. Anyway, that's the end of a very good episode of Townsend <laughs> Abbey that made us all cry. Yes. 
very good episode. No, the whole the whole Murdy Juniors. Oh thing. God, they really put a good shot in the arm. Too. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, this episode easily could have been dominated by "Who will marry Mary?" nonsense. <laughs> yeah, but that was all kept at a pretty fast clip. It was, and it seems like that seems to be pretty much done now. Uh-huh. Which is fine. Yeah. If only we could say the same from Murder Prison. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, there wasn't much about it. There was just... I guess so. ...sniping about it. But, you know, we didn't see Officer Bummer the whole episode. That's true. So maybe What's that's also done. Yeah. That yeah. would be great. I mean, despite the fact that Baxter kept talking about it. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, it is now time for the Abbey Awards Hooray. for this episode. Kick it off with Worst Decision. And that goes to Fellows and Neem. Congratulations, guys. I think it's been a while. I think you're right. Uh, we're very upset with them for killing Isis. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. We can't don't... she just be a supernaturally long-lived dog? Yeah. Some kind of cyber dog. Yeah. That's honestly one of the more plausible things that could happen <laughs> on this show. Next up, we have Best Evasion. Uh, that's actually uh, going to a triad of people. Mm-hmm. McGee, Edith, and Mr. Drew for successfully handling the Marigold switcheroo. Right. Uh, Anna saw them, which wasn't great, but she's not going to tell anybody, it sounds yeah. like. So. And it also was a very, like, surprise situation. They yeah. had no reason to think Mary would be there, and they had to think fast. No, and they were very successful in their uh, evasion of Mary specifically. Mm-hmm. So hats off to you. Yeah. Next, we have Worst Overbite. And that goes to Thing 1 and Thing 2. Fuck those guys. Yeah. Oh, my God. They are the worst. They are the worst. And I mean, I think, you know, their attitudes are definitely, you know, uh, appropriate for the time period. But Mm -hmm. their manners are atrocious. Mm -hmm. Like, it's incredible how badly mannered they are. Yeah, because it's like if they were making all these same criticisms in a kind of elegant, snipey way. like they In a Dowager Countess kind of way. Yeah, like they'd still suck, but... Oh my gosh. Awful. Uh, just, yeah. Worst characters there have been on this show. Yeah. Wait, worse than that cat-faced Edna? Hmm. That would be an entire episode. <laughs> to, like, rank our, like, least favorite characters. Yeah. That would be hard. And next up, we have the Gibson Girl Award. Uh, in a surprise move, going to Isabel. Yeah. Who's really nailing it this episode. Yeah. She, uh, I, I really liked the... Uh, the outfit she wore when they announced their engagement was a blue that I really liked, mm-hmm. a darker blue. And then actually earlier when she was with, I believe with the Dowager, she was wearing a red, uh, like coat and hat situation. And I like it because so many of the colors this season have been like these very kind of washed out, like pinks and greens and, and, you know, she's wearing like deep colors mm-hmm. and I, it, it, you know, it stands out and I really liked it in this episode. Which brings us to the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. And that goes to Rosamond. She's finally pulled it out, guys. (laughs) She finally went a hat too far. (laughs) That's right. That hat alone, just that hat. We're like, this hat will not stand. And therefore, Rosamond, you better think about what you did. Yeah. Next up, we have the Cutest Baby Award. Continuing in her unbreakable streak. Right. Zibby. Yeah. There were some opportunities for George and Marigold to try to take it away from you, but you played poo sticks, uh-huh. and then you petted a dying dog. Yeah. There's like, literally nothing we can do. <laughs> yeah. There's no... It's not even... A, yeah. You like, know, I'm just... George and Marigold need better agents. <laughs> yeah. They are not getting good scene work. No, it's true. And actually... uh Sibby is the only one that gets listed in the IMDb credits, although she's uncredited. But I was looking up because a cousin had a question about whether Marigold is being played by somebody different. 
And we think not, but IMDb does not have anything to say either way. Yeah. And finally, we have everybody's favorite, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. And uh, we are going with a four for this episode. Yeah. Pretty high form. Uh, she was a little emotionally off kilter, which may have affected some of her zingers. Right. I think actually I would have given her a five if it weren't for the sort of clunkiness of that men don't have rights bit. And yeah. there was just a couple of like weird. Yeah, there was a couple of little glitches here and there. But her whole thing, you know, with the reaction to Isabel and everything, just that really, and, really. And dealing with McGee. Yeah. Like, it was a yeah. real, yeah, it was a solid episode. Yeah. And just being like, yeah, uh, McGee's totally, you know, right to be pissed at me and not trust me yeah yeah god we're in the home stretch here we are next week will be episode eight which is like the the final episode proper and then after that we'll have the uh the christmas special yeah and then that'll be and it that'll be it yeah this time flies it really does when you're having fun with downton abbey <laughs> all right then until next time up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs luncheon out <laughs> <laughs>